episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. After a nearly two and a half year break, this is part three of my interview series with Chris Bolton. And I tell you what, it is all kicking off in this one. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly sponsored by Tez. At Tez, they've been supporting educators for over 100 years, and now they have a worldwide community of 13.3 million. Tez believe in the power of great teaching and connect teachers and schools all over the world, helping them to improve children's lives through education. Tez have just launched the ultimate collection of essential resources that every teacher needs. Whether you're looking for creative new ideas for planning lessons, templates to support students, or resources to speed up your marking and feedback, look no further than their brand new Teacher Essential page at tez.com forward slash teacher hyphen essentials. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Every month over the course of this academic year, Tez will be releasing new and exciting content to help teachers with their everyday practice. They'll be highlighting some of the best and most innovative teacher-made resources available on Tez on topics including behaviour, AFL, report writing, and of course, marking and feedback. And brand new for December 2019 is Tutor Time Essentials. Make sure to bookmark tez.com forward slash teacher hyphen essentials and check back for new resource highlights every month. And if you're looking for resources beyond Teacher Essentials, then visit tez.com forward slash teaching hyphen resources and browse thousands of resources for every subject or share your own by uploading them to Tez. And if, like Tez, you are interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. And there'll be a link to that email address in the show notes. So, back to today's episode with Chris Bolton. Now, who is Chris? Well, having been through the Teach First program and taught maths with the likes of Bruno Reddy, Chris is now the Director of Education at UpLearn, a project with the tagline, Learning with Certainty, powered by AI and neuroscience. Chris is also a very prominent speaker at the likes of Research Ed and many events around the country. Now, Chris's first appearance on my podcast was a really defining episode for me, as Chris spoke at great length about how he planned a sequence of lessons on simultaneous equations, something he described as his best teaching ever. 
Now the level of detail and the depth of thought that went into that sequencing blew my mind. And it was that interview together with conversations with the likes of Greg Ashman, Dylan William, the Bjorks and many others that was the catalyst for my mid-career crisis that led me to reading as much about cognitive science as I could and ultimately led me to write my book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, still available in all good and evil bookstores. So you can only imagine my surprise when I see a talk is giving, uh, Chris is giving at Research Ed entitled, are you ready for this? Cognitive science is almost useless for designing effective teaching. Hmm. So I had to get Chris back on the podcast and I, I am incredibly glad that I did. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. Does Chris really believe that cognitive science is useless for designing effective teaching? What actually is cognitive science? What are the limits of cognitive science? What's the alternative that Chris is so keen on? How actually does it work in practice? And if it is so flipping brilliant, why is it not taken over the world? And along the way, Chris, you'll be loving this, listeners, pulls apart the way I teach quite a few things, but in particular, expanding double brackets, and it's changed the way I'm going to approach that forever. Now, this interview references lots from Chris's first appearance on the show, especially with regard to his planning of that sequence of lessons on simultaneous equations. So if you have time, I would recommend a quick refresher of that episode before diving into this one. Well, as quick as three hours of your life can be. But if you can't do that, this episode should work absolutely fine as a standalone. Um, one big plug before we start, uh, my new book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is due for release at the end of February 2020. It's my potentially controversial look at how to use carefully varied sequences of questions and examples in the classroom to enable our students to think mathematically. Now, it's based on my interpretation of a small part of variation theory, something Chris and I talk about um, a lot in this episode, and hopefully listeners will find it interesting whether you've dabbled in the stuff on my variationtheory.com website or not, whether you are familiar with variation theory or not, and whether you believe in my interpretation of it or not. Um, there's also a chapter in there uh, which is uh, my kind of reflection on all the things that I've learned in the two years since How I Wish I Taught Maths came out, and um, when I've been lucky enough to visit schools around the country working with teachers and students from different backgrounds and so on and so forth. Um, that particular chapter was supposed to be a small one, just a quick reflection. Reflection on, on how my views have changed on a few things and what I've learned and so on turned out to be over 40,000 words which is um, longer than many uh, books in its entirety basically I had a lot to reflect on but I hope um, lis listeners will enjoy reading the book uh, reflect expect check explain it's available to pre-order from Amazon now to guarantee delivery on their release date and there's a link in the show notes anyway Without further ado, let me introduce part three of the Chris Bolton interview series. Now, this could be Godfather 3 coming along long after part two and potentially dividing the critics. Or it could be Toy Story 3 causing listeners to weep uncontrollably during the last 10 minutes. I'm just hoping that I manage to avoid it becoming Terminator 3. Anyway, strap yourselves in for this one and get ready for a couple of hours of wonderfully deep thinking from one of us anyway. And as ever, I will see you on the other side.
Okay, so Chris Bolton, first off, welcome back to the podcast. Um, how are you getting on? Uh, really good. Thanks for having me back on. It's always been a real honour and a real, a real pleasure as well, a real delight. Definitely. You're contractually obliged to say that, so that's, that's good. We've got that, got that out of the way. Got that out of the way. <laughs> now, this, you were last on. You've been on a few times in kind of uh, conference yeah. takeaways. Um, but this is, you, the last time you were on properly was October 2017, which was part two. And we teased a part three. We've kept the crowd waiting. So before we dive into part three, what, what have you been up to in the last, well, over two years now? God, has it really been that long? Two and a half years. Yes. Um, everything. My, my complete, my life completely changed. Um, I just started working at Upland at that point. So yeah, there were, there were five of us in the basement of a furniture shop. And now there are 50 something of us working out of a large, large two story office in Old Street. So yeah, been working really hard to sort of build out this company and build the team. It's been. On a hell of a journey, really exciting. And just um, for the benefit of listeners who aren't aware, and I'll give you a free plug here, just just tell us a little bit about Uplearn. Mm. Yeah, it's an uh, online study and revision platform currently for A-levels, um, which is powered by cognitive science and artificial intelligence. So the idea is um, to guarantee that anybody who went through the courses would get an A or an A-star. And at this point, we also back that up as a, a money-back guarantee. In the future, we want it to be an absolute guarantee. Jeez, flipping heck. Fantastic. Okay, fantastic. Right, well, the reason you're, you're back, Chris, is because I remember seeing this. I, I forget where, which research head it was, whether it was Research Head National or one of the regional ones, but you were given a talk um, about cognitive science. And in, in, in either the title or in the blurb, you, you uttered this sentence, cognitive science is almost useless for designing effective teaching. Now, when I read that, I thought, he's either lost his mind or it's a misprint. Because yeah. the thing is, Chris, you're kind of one of the main people responsible for getting me into appreciating the power of cognitive science and, and reading as much research as I could get my hands on and, and changing my teaching based on the findings mm. of this. And then I read that you've changed your mind. So I'm, 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 I'm a combination of confused and annoyed here. So you, you've got to explain what, what's going on here. Do, do you really believe this? Is, is cognitive science almost useless for defi- uh, designing effective teaching? Uh, honestly, yes, I think so. After all, it is a theory of human cognition, so it's it's closely tied to ideas about human learning. So what it's not is a theory of instruction. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, before we get too deep, we're going to have to define a few things here. Cognitive science is one of these phrases mm. that gets banded around a lot. What do, what do you mean by cognitive science? Um, I understand it as the... Uh, and whenever I try to put this in my own words, I find that people who know more than me <laughs> correct me. <laughs> but mine's under, so if you say it's a theory of human cognition, you can't go wrong with that one. Yes, okay. Um, I get, I guess I think of it as, um, to some extent, a sort of theory of the human mind or how thinking processes take place, the, the parts that are involved in that from a, a psychological perspective, a, a conceptual perspective, rather than, say, a, a biological or neurophysiological perspective. Um, but the, the two can be related, but I think we're still on the cusp of understanding how to connect this, um, almost like theory of cognition to, um, model, like physiological models of how the brain works. Um, and so that, that can tell you something about, um, 
about learners, about the, the human condition, about the condition of, of learning, the processes that take place. Um, but that's quite distinct from telling you how to teach something on Monday. Um, yeah, the, one of the reasons I'm, I'm concerned here, Chris, is that, as I mentioned, you, you got me into, into, into thinking about cognitive mm. science. But now... A lot of people are into it, right? And I know there's a danger that we're in this kind of Twitter bubble where we only see the conversations uh, being conducted um, over Twitter and so on. And you, and you can get blindsided into thinking that, that everybody's engaged with, with, with research. But mm. certainly more teachers are than I've, I've known throughout the majority of my career. More people are talking about whether it's Bjork's work or cognitive load theory mm. and so on and so forth. So um, are, are we going wrong? Should we not be talking about this if, if we want to improve as teachers? I think we absolutely should be. Um, but what I'm worried about is... Um, um, I, I'm worried that actually very soon, say within the next five years, cognitive science is going to be dismissed by a lot of these people as last decade's fad. By, by, by which people? The people who, who propose it now or, or the, the critics of it now? Um, not by the critics, by the... So I think... So um, if, let me, can I start by giving you like a bit of a timeline yeah, of please, just my please. personal experience with this? So I... So if you flash back a little bit, 2006, Coach Swallow Clark released their paper, 2010, Dan Wellingham produces Why Don't Students Like School? Two, I think, very, very important texts in the debate. And I started learning to train and to teach in 2011. At the point that I started, uh, everything about my training was about constructivism. There was uh, lots of things about cognitive conflict. There was nothing at all about um, cognitive science, as we understand it, in any way, shape or form. And um, I, I started reading things like the Coach and Twelve Clark paper and Dan Williams' book over the Christmas after my first term, having had a pretty terrible first term of trying to teach things. And for me, this was this was revelatory. This completely changed my world. When I started trying to speak with my tutors about it, none of my tutors had heard any of this stuff before. When I spoke to my colleagues about it, none of them had heard about it before. And so it felt like there was um, Daisy Christodoulou bang, banging the drum of this quite a bit. And then me and Joe Kirby start banging the drum of this as well. But, th- but this is about it. So if I go and I speak to, um, it's, you know, my little world anyway, if I speak with my uh, tutors at the university about it. They've never heard of anything around cognitive science. If I speak with my, um, my mentor, uh, my mentors, they've never heard anything about it. My colleagues hadn't heard about it. Most of the other teach versus hadn't heard about it as well. Um, and just for the benefit so, of listeners, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, you mentioned two, two kind of key sources there, the Willingham book that, that mm-hmm. uh, many readers, uh, many listeners will be familiar with. Um, the Kirshner Sweller Clark paper, that's the um, why minimally minimalist instruction is effective. It's that one, is why, that right? Yeah, why minimally guided instruction is uh, not effective. And just, again, the reason I'm asking you this, I'm looking off uh, uh, Paul Kirshner's coming on the on the show um, in the next couple of months. Oh. Um, what what was so profound about that that paper in particular? So there was a quote from that paper. I mean, there's a few really good ones, but one of them that always stuck with me over the last 10 years was the aim of all instruction is to alter long-term memory. If nothing has changed in long-term memory, nothing has been learned. And like most of my teacher training had been very pie in the sky conversation. It was very, 
what do you think good teaching looks like? Um, leading questions like, uh, are quiet classrooms always the best classrooms? Or like really high level stuff around the purpose of schooling and education in shaping the lives of our students. Right? What do we want for our students over the next 20 years? Nothing about what my job, job is on Monday. And this gave me a profound sense of clarity. My job is to alter what is in their long term memory. And now I need to learn how to do that. And both this paper and Willingham's book were also very good on um, extolling the virtues or, or the role, as it were, that long-term memory plays in human cognition. So I, I tended to start off being quite uh, sort of afraid of long-term memory. I, I, I hear things like memorization, rote memorization. And there were other quotes from that paper that said things like, um, the past 30 years of research into cognitive sciences revealed to us that uh, how to go that long-term memory is uh, not just a passive repository of discrete isolated facts nor does it have merely a peripheral role in um in human cognition uh, on the contrary it is the the central dominant uh, structure in human cognition um so it was this whole sort of reshaping of my understanding of what uh, independent creative critical thought is it's not this sort of abstract nebulous um idea it was something that could be concretized it, it, a function of what we have in our long-term memory the the amount of knowledge we have the relationships between that knowledge as well uh, plus a few other things so yeah i felt like it gave i felt like that paper gave me quite a bit of clarity around what my job was and where i could go next to learn more and I'm picturing here, so you're, you're kind of reading this and reading the Willingham book and you're going to your tutors and, and they're not having <laughs> any of it. Uh, so is it you and Joe kind of a bit of a breakaway group here, just kind of in secret, reading this, <laughs> ideas are bubbling away, trying oh. things out? Is it that kind, that kind of scene? I don't know if we were that secret about it. Um, I think we were both very noisy about it. I think quite a lot of people would have rather we just shut up. Um <laughs> And, you know, it's, I think Daisy kicked a lot of this off. And then, yeah, Joe and I were the first followers, if you were. And then um, and then like, others did come with us. In, in 2013, uh, Research Ed launched for the first time. That would become hugely influential. In 2013, uh, me and Joe and other friends started writing blogs about these things as well. Um, Daisy launched her book, Seven Myths. And, and so you get some sort of like momentum starting over up to 2015 in 2015 very important year um you launched this math this, this podcast <laughs> for the very right. first time <laughs> this is going to play a really important role in things i think um in 20 so in 2016 so we're five years on and something really important happened that i think most people are unaware of uh, a man called stephen monday led i'm not sure if you'd call it a government expert group or or, or what exactly but uh, essentially, if you Google Monday report, M-U-N-D-A-Y report, you'll find that um, he led a team of people to produce a framework by which initial teacher training providers uh, should be um, structuring their courses. They, they, they're supposed to be delivering training in line with the guidance in this framework. And it included uh, a requirement to teach training teachers about cognitive science, about working memory, about long term memory, as well as some important ideas and assessment theory as well. And I remember thinking on the one hand, when I looked at it, this is a seminal moment. But on the other hand, because it's a framework without much more behind it, it's, it's quite thin what it says. Um, I think most training providers, if they were so inclined, 
could largely ignore it or do a sort of bare minimum to say that they ticked the box. So I was a little, I, I wasn't confident it was going to have the impact that I wish it would have. And then in 2017, two, two extraordinary things happened. The first was that Dan Willingham put out his famous tweet saying, um, the more I learned about it, the more I thought John Sweller's cognitive load theory was the single most important theory for teachers to, to learn about. And I think up until that moment, this was seen as a bit of a, a niche thing that some people were doing. And that really sent it mainstream. And that, that was and Dil, also, Dil, Dylan William, is that right? I think you said Dan Willingham. Dylan William put the tweet out. Sorry, right? Dylan William, yeah. Um, and that's probably like and, the most famous tweet in kind of education history, exactly. right? That was the one that really kick-started it, absolutely. Exactly. And in the same year, you interviewed uh, Daisy and Greg Ashman and I think a few other people as well. And these were the people who started getting you to uh, oh, uh, re-evaluate re and rethink everything. And it was then a mid-career mid, mid, mid crisis, Chris. It, it all fell <laughs> apart. That's absolutely right. No, I can definitely. <laughs> I know what that would feel like. Um, but then the following year, you published the book um, explaining all of that. And in every school I've been, whenever I've been visiting or training or speaking with maths departments and maths teachers, they're all reading your book. So at least within maths departments, that has sent cognitive science like hyper mainstream. So that's been really exciting. And this, uh, and this is my problem, Chris. I'm sensing a twist in the tail because that, that's a nice happy ending, right, for it. <laughs> like, let's let's end the conversation there. But what, what, I can't imagine what's yeah. going to go wrong here. What could go wrong? <laughs> exactly the right question. So what do I think is going wrong? I think um, – so I feel like I hit the limit of what cognitive science could offer me as a teacher quite a long time ago. Um, but I'm OK with that. Um, I, I appreciate that this is a, a sort of natural limit. It's not theory of everything. I appreciate that it's, there's a natural limit to what it can offer. Um, but then what I thought is, OK, so I've, I've spent quite a long time reading about this and talking about it and discussing it with, with friends and colleagues. Um, and I'm comfortable with that idea of a limit. But. What happens if you're one of the sort of mid mid adopters, midterm adopters, uh, who are now part of the mainstream, part of the, the large, larger sort of group of people who haven't and aren't prepared to put in that same level of that same amount of time? And what they're hearing is um, this is the latest thing. This is going to finally uh, turn your teaching around uh, or, or like hyper accelerate your teaching so that all the kids are going to be doing amazing things. Uh, and you start looking at what's out there and you run into a, a, a whole bunch of problems. So uh, Claire Hill and I think a few others started talking about this idea that they've called lethal mutations as one of them, which I think is brilliant. One of the best examples I saw of this was um, somebody tweeting about a knowledge organizer that they'd produced. And it was basically an A4 sheet of paper that listed the exam criteria and how many minutes you're supposed to be spending on each uh, question, which was never what the knowledge organizer thing was supposed to be about. From a cognitive science perspective, it wasn't just an arrangement uh, of information on a sheet of paper. It was about um, trying to specify what changes you want to take place in long term memory. And that's just one example. And there, there, are, there are many of them out there. So people, uh, Dylan William experienced this with um AFL, one of the best examples I ever heard him talking about was a primary school teacher who um, said, OK, now we're going to do our AFL. And what the kids had to do was hold up 
a lollipop stick that had bunny ears uh, glued onto them. And when he asked what that was about, she said, uh, well, this is, um, they hold the sticks up to let me know that they're listening. It's so far from the idea of AFL. Uh, This teacher thinks she's doing AFL. At the last research that I was at, I think, I think it was in Kent, um, Becky Allen and Ben White did a really interesting talk on what they describe as wicked problems. So they're talking about kind of the, the, the education system, or at least what we seem to want out of it as a wicked problem. And they go into a lot of quite academic uh, and technical detail about the problems of system-wide reform and how they follow a typical cycle and how we've had this sort of decade of focus on knowledge and um, cognitive science. And, and actually, do we see a big turnaround all of a sudden in our schools, in our schools' results? Is everything getting better? Um, I think the answer is probably no. It probably feels like, to a lot of people, nothing much has changed. So how do you react when you feel like the new thing that was supposed to have all this promise doesn't actually change anything? Um, Mark McCourt always always talks about He's been, been around in this game a lot longer than <laughs> both of us. And he always talks about this 30-year cycle and recently tweeted out, um, oh, it's good to see the 30-year cycle is, is beginning anew and He's been going in lots of schools, speaking with teachers, and feels like the kinds of things they're now focusing on um, are just taking us back 30 years. So really, I think I'm worried that there is a significant risk, actually, of throwing out all the progress that we've made, of of sliding back in time um, and indeed indulging in this 30 year looping pendulum swing. And I think if we if that happens that would be a profound misunderstanding of our current situation. All right. Let, let me see if I've got my head around this, Chris. The, the, this is fascinating, this. So uh, you're not saying that, well, I, I don't know what you're saying here, actually. You're not saying <laughs> that cognitive science is mm. useless. Are you saying that there's a danger that its findings are either being misinterpreted or taken too far or misused so that there's, a danger that when those things obviously don't work because they were never designed or intended to work, that it gets dismissed as being useless. Is that the argument or have I, I missed it slightly? Mm. Um, I think it has some very real limits and talking openly about what those limits are is very important. So um, uh, Oliver Caviglioli was the first to sort of introduce me to this idea of what you call boundary conditions, which I think it took from a book that I've, I've seen a few people reading. Uh, I think it's it's learning as a generative activity, I think, where it looks at different bits of research. But in each case, says where this is useful and where it might not be useful, rather than just assuming it's useful for everything. Um, <clears throat> and if I. So the, the reason I, 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 you've got this question, you know, how far can cognitive science going helping us to uh, develop effective instruction because that's really what i'm talking about developing effective teaching and i do think it's very limited so essentially cognitive science most of it can be boiled down to its uh, retrieval practice distributed practice and interleaved practice um now there's more but those three which are actually three versions of the same thing retrieval practice are the testing effect um, as in distributed practice really just sort of helps leverage te- uh, the testing effect and how retrieval strength and storage strength interact with each other. Um, 
those three things are the big ones that keep being reiterated again and again that crop up everywhere uh, that people are usually trying to use. And like very often when you, um, yeah, because obviously I work in EdTech now, very often when you look at um, uh, an EdTech platform and they say that they're powered by cognitive science, what they typically mean is we do retrieval practice and distributed practice. And as far as I can ascertain from their marketing materials, that is about the limit of them. Um, but okay, there is actually more. So there is more guidance. Uh, for example, uh, from cognitive science, we get the idea that we need to be very, very careful, think deeply about what pupils will be attending to at all points in the lesson. So where is their attention focused? Um, there's this an argument for leveraging narrative frameworks, stories, wherever possible. Um, we, we recognize that things that are meaningful in some way uh, are easier to retrieve from memories and things that are completely devoid of meaning. Uh, so this is the, the idea of schema building. Um, we we have this idea of uh, continuances. I think mostly Dan Willingham's interpretation, but I'll, I do quite like it. A continuum from inflexible knowledge to flexible knowledge, which is very important for distinguishing um, something which has been learned and which is meaningful, but is still in its infancy versus something that is uh, rote knowledge. Uh, we get the idea of expertise induced blindness, which I do think is extremely important for thinking about when we plan and structure lessons uh, for curriculum de- design, separation of minimally different concepts. What else can I, what else can I figure out? Um, what about, general, can I, can I, I ask that, you, oh, sorry, Chris, you, you, you keep yeah, going. Keep going. Oh, okay. Well, let, let uh, me ask you, what, what about, um, what, what about cognitive load theory then? Cause you, you've, you've not really touched upon that in terms of, you've done the retrieval obviously and linking into mm. Bjork's work there. What about all the limits on working memory and, um, designing instruction to, to be aware of those limits. And does that have a Mm. place? Right. So cognitive, as well as cognitive load theory is distinct from cognitive science, but the two are often conflated as if they're one and the same. Cognitive load theory, as best I understand uh, what Swallow has been doing here, um, he first of all recognizes that, that the kind of limitation of cognitive science that I'm explaining here, that it's, we, we've got this um, seemingly robust model of human cognition, which people in control laboratory conditions are continuing to expand. But because of the theory of cognition, not instruction, it doesn't tell us much about exactly how to do good teaching. So he starts cognitive load theory as um, an opportunity, as, as a program designed to try and come up with instructional recommendations based off of cognitive theory, based off cognitive science. Um, and so he has actually done that. So there's guidance around the, the redundancy effect, split attention effect, and transient information effect, three things that you have to avoid when you're teaching. Um, he talks about the modality effect, which leads to the idea of dual coding, the worked example effect, which leads to problem example pairs, the goal-free effect, which leads to goal-free problems, generation effect, and that arguably you could say the... Um, if you ever come across the Feynman technique, it, it's arguably leveraging the, the generation effect, guidance fading and scaffolding. So like those are all very useful. But I started to realize they still feel a little disconnected to me. I mean, they're obviously connected by this underpinning theory. But uh, OK, take take goal free problems. They come up nearly nowhere. So they come up a little bit in science from what I can tell. The only place I've ever found utility for them in mathematics is in geometry problems principally 
Um, there may be a few other places, but there aren't many where you can really clearly de- uh, develop goal-free problems. Uh, See, I'm, I'm not just I, I'm not sure that's true. On well, I'm, I'm not sure I, I agree with that. I think that many areas of maths you can you can harness the, the use of goal-free problems. And and what I what I found just on a practical level is that mm-hmm. removing the goal um, it can it can achieve a couple of things really. It's um it. I, I think it encourages more students to participate in the problem. So kids who may look at that end goal and think, well, I don't have a bloody clue what to do there, so I'm not even going to start. When that mm. goal's removed, whether it's um, an algebraic proof, whether, as you say, it's a geometry problem, whether it's one of these kind of real life where you get a load of different information on the distance to a place, the cost of petrol and all this. If that end goal's removed, I tend to find more kids are willing to have a go. And then also whether yeah, you buy into this, the idea of the, the the means end strategy or whatever but kids mm. seem to it doesn't seem to be as big a jump needed from the start to the finish so i tend to find students are a bit more structured in the way they approach it and a bit more kind of reflective on each step that they 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 take and for me that and again i might be might be naive in this but cognitive load theory and those findings that you spoke about redundancy split attention effect worked example effect and so on that I found they've really improved my teaching and that would be and when that's why whenever and I know you say cognitive load theory is distinct from cognitive science but mm-hmm. in terms of allowing me to be a more effective teacher I found it a really practical usable theory if that, if that makes sense would, would you disagree on that I'd agree with that 100% I think first of all uh, the point made about goal-free problems um, if you're finding more and more places to use them, then that's fantastic because I have no doubt in their efficacy whatsoever. Um, what I'm questioning is the, the boundary conditions of their efficacy and how wide it is, how many things it can be applied to. And I'm also interested in how that applies across subjects increasingly as well. Um, what would a goal-free problem in history look like, for example? The answer is there probably aren't any. Um, and I also believe that it, 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 me too, it made me a, a much better, much, much better teacher than I was without it. Um, but then here's like, here's another follow on from that, which I think is really interesting. Uh, would you, uh, are you confident that you could take, take on any class and get every single kid into that room, barring some kind of significant cognitive impediment, at least up to a, say, a grade seven that you could teach them everything and anything uh, based on what we have from cognitive science, what that has to offer us. And they could all, I guarantee, absolutely no failure whatsoever. <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't like to be on record of saying yes, just in case somebody uh, devises some way to test it. But uh, again, it goes back to what, what you were saying before with if we take um, the three, whether you whether we label them as uh, desirable difficulties or whatever, the, the retrieval effect, spacing effect and, and interleaving effect, they are things that I have I have seen with my own eyes and mm. seen with with results have drastic impact on students learning mm. and retention. Like I I know they work. The theory says they work, and I've seen them work. You know. So so yeah. Go on. So so for me, it's like what are we comparing this to, right? So I think that the most of that power and most of that gain that we've experienced has been. Because it, it's the, the theories have been so useful, even like the base of cognitive science, in helping us understand which instructional methods are very likely to be ineffective. 
So it's helped to dispel um, and explain where they originated from, myths like learning styles. Mm. It's helped us to understand why discovery, inquiry, project and problem-based learning, while very beguiling, are very often in most cases predictably going to lead to widespread failure. So I think it's been profoundly useful in helping us understand how not to teach. And if you stop teaching in those ways and you start moving towards a series of uh, a sort of a, a, broad, a loose paradigm that cognitive science and CLT in particular offer us, then absolutely, I think you're going to see remarkable gains. Well, let, let me just go go a little bit further. Like again, we're, 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 the the point we're, we're we're trying to get to here is that that you're arguing that that cognitive science possibly has has a limit to its its um, usefulness. Um, but like some of the things you've mentioned there. Like it's quite a long list, right? Like if if we if we take retrieval into leaving and spacing, they they come into quite a few things. If you then start chucking into the mix some of the other things you've spoke about about kind of the, the narrative structure and the power of that, then we start. To, if you want to loop in cognitive load theory into that, there there isn't many areas of instruction where these things don't have an impact, and I would argue a positive impact. So it's not as if this is quite a niche thing or a small part of instruction this is is pretty significant and, and widespread wouldn't you say so i would ask um if you're learning about those different things that we listed the different cognitive load effects and um the various different things that you know, can benefit from this um if you're sort of in your coming to this new or you're in your first year or two of teaching something like that um to what extent does it really tell you anything about how to teach totalitarianism, simultaneous equations, or verb conjugations in, in French and Spanish? Okay, no, that that's good. I'll give you that. So, all right. So, a couple of things. So, cognitive load theory may suggest ways not to do it. Right. So, there are <laughs> there's certain ways we could present that information that would yeah. not not be useful, um, whether it's redundancy, whether it's split attention, and so on and so forth. Um, as you say, worked example effect would start to suggest ways to actually do it. So break, you know, breaking it down into smaller, more manageable steps, which mm -hmm. again may lead on to example problem pairs and so on and so forth. So I think, again, it's not as if it's all theoretical. I think there's there's definite practical takeaways either of what not to do and what to do. The, I mean, I can't speak outside <laughs> of the world of mathematics, but certainly it's been reading those theories which have made me rethink how to teach a lot of the mathematical ideas that I've taught in the past. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's what it's particularly good at, informing us about how approaches we may have uh, been inclined towards taking or our teacher training may have directed towards and um, putting them under a lens or a filter that reveals why they're so ineffective. And if, you, if you're ruling out a set of, uh, one set of approaches, then that immediately reveals a new set to you. Um, but if I take something like worked example problem pairs, I um, I do not believe that they are like the best approach. I think that they have a a place um, in teaching, say, multi-step problems like solving simultaneous equations. But I don't believe that they are um, that they alone are not going to help you communicate with guaranteed 100% success something that has so many constituent parts. It's too high level. Also within this, there's actually no, there's no theory of knowledge at all. There's no knowledge analysis. So there's nothing that looks across um, 
history, maths, and languages, totalitarianism, some of these equations and verb conjugations, and says, this is how they're different. And therefore, this is how you should teach them. This is how you should approach them. Here's what to do. Okay. So are, are we saying that the limit of cognitive science is it can suggest things that aren't particularly effective and maybe give some kind of hints as to what might be, but not take us all the way? Or is, is that overly simplistic? Um, I, I think that's probably a good summary of what's in my head. I think it's also really important to, 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 to consider just how, how deeply you would think about these things, how much time you spend thinking about them, putting it into practice, the conversations you have with people. You're really actually, despite you know, writing a book about how I wish I'd taught maths and being 15 years already into a career, you are one of the early adopters. You're one of the people who like, got on board really early on and, and invested huge amounts of time in it. And I'm interested in what does this offer to people who um, are looking for a, a, something more of a quick fix, who feel like they don't have that time to invest. They've, they've got lessons to teach and they're interested in how to do it better, but they need it to be reasonably quick. Um, and how can that go wrong? And this is where we get into the ideas around things like lethal mutations and how it can be applied incorrectly. Or even when I think about my own teaching, um, it definitely hit a limit. Even in my last year teaching at uh, KSA, I was trying all kinds of, of different things that, broadly speaking, are in line with um, the theory as they're outlined here. So there's, like, there's, there's a lot of options still for how to approach teaching specific um, bits of knowledge, specific concepts. Okay, all right. I'm I'm not sold on the dream just yet here, but maybe okay. you can, maybe you can sell it on me if you if you tell me the alternative then. So what what what's beyond cognitive science? If we've reached the limit there, and as mm. you say, we've got these mid adopters looking for looking for a quick fix, looking for something that can't. And I, I love the I love the, the the term lethal mutations. If we're looking for something mm. that can't go wrong, mm-hmm. what, what is it, Chris? So I think we need to treat cognitive science like it is uh, the foundation of our evidence-informed education movement. So it is it is the bedrock upon which we can start to build out uh, theories of instruction, uh, similar to obviously what Sweller has also done. Um, so we want something that can give us endless guidance in actually how to teach. Uh, if we, I'm worried that if we keep treating cognitive science as if it's the like the, the bleeding edge as if this is like the thing you need to know, um, then increasingly teachers will be disappointed when they realize it doesn't solve all the problems or explain how to teach. Um, but they shouldn't be because I don't think it's what it can do. It does a great deal for us, but it has its limits. And um, once we hit those limits, once you, you've, you've understood the sort of underpinning theory and you've understood the effects from um, John Sweller's work, in my view, the next thing to move on to is Engelman and Carnine's theory of instruction. Um, I was just rereading the, I think I actually, no, I've been rereading it recently. This was published in the early 80s and I, I've never actually read the foreword before, uh, written by Robert Dixon. Uh, this was put into the 1991 edition and he described it then as the only theory of instruction in existence. And we're 30 years on, um, but to my knowledge, I don't think that has changed. I don't think that there are alternative theories of instruction in the way that Robert Dixon meant that. Uh, nothing as as comprehensive as Engelman and Carnine's 
Um, I don't believe that any of us can be as effective a teacher as we could be without a working knowledge of this theory and its application. Okay, now that, that that's a, that's a big claim. And just just before we dive into the weeds of this, because I, I've tried to read a bit of Engelman, and bloody hell, Chris, it is it is, <laughs> it is tough going. Yeah. Um, so one question before we go deep into this is the the so the cognitive science stuff that we've spoke about, particularly mm. the retrieval, spacing, and interleaving, and if we if we mm. lump in cognitive load theory into this, would you? And this may be too crude a term, but is is that prerequisite knowledge before people start thinking about this theory of instruction, or can you? can you ditch all that stuff and just dive straight into what we're going to talk about now you could i think you absolutely could but i'm not sure to what extent i would recommend it um i'm I'm in two minds about this i am a a very theoretical thinker quite often so i think the theory is very i think cognitive science as a theory is very important i think it should be known one of the big reasons i think it'd be important to um to know it is because um, it, it's so Engelman and Carnine's theory of instruction is fully compatible with the recommendations that come from cognitive science. So if you run the theory of their theory of instruction through the same filter that we talked about before, um, it passes, it gets through and yet was developed without those principles of cognitive science in mind. So, yeah, there were, um, they, to, to do that is, is a kind of extraordinary achievement when you can design something without reference to a theory and then it turns out to be completely compatible with that theory. But that in, in the natural sciences, that's usually taken to be a when two theories sort of converge or are compatible with each other. That's taken as a good sign that you're heading in the right direction. Um is it worth me saying anything about how it was developed? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. How it works. So it's built on, so it's built on top of a number of assumptions. Um, and the idea is that those are axioms that we just have to take at face value. Um, and potentially, I think, can't even be proved. So it's treated a little bit like Euclid's geometry in the, in the first instance. Um, the first assumption though is that people can learn from their environment. I think most of us would probably accept that as an axiom. Um, that's like saying, through experience, you learn things, rather yeah. than all learning taking place in your head. Okay, I'll go with that. Yeah, I'll big, big tick for that one. Yep. Okay. So then they say, well, look, if you want to understand learning, then you therefore need to analyze the environment and the learner. And so... The, the the environment, they call that analysis of communication. So when they say environment, they don't actually just mean like the um, the room that you've walked into. They might mean um, some presentation provided by a teacher or a textbook. In other words, some kind of external stimulus or stimuli. And then when they are talking about the learner, they'll, they, they call that analysis of behavior. So how does the learner respond? How do they behave? Um, in response to this communication and then what can that tell us about things that we might need to change they do say that there's that most of, in their view most of the research at the time was into the, the behavior of learners and not so much into uh the analysis of communication so that's what most of the book is is focusing on um and they do actually when they talk about learning they refer to it as cognitive learning 
Uh, so even though they're not directly referring to the kinds of principles I'm talking about earlier, uh, they do see their work as being related to cognitive activity of some sort. Um, and just to clarify, Chris, <clears throat> this isn't subject specific in any in any sense. This is a generic theory. Is this, this right? Completely. Um, they I mean, Robert Dixon again says in his foreword, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like a, a, a comprehensive theory of how to teach everything from basic physical, not even academic knowledge, from basic physical activities, um, physical skills, all the way up to more complex cognitive uh, processes as well. Jeez, because I think that that's one of the things that really kind of lured me in with, with cognitive load theory. The fact that so many of the examples are so well suited to mathematics, it just it just resonated yeah. and made sense. As soon as I start to hear kind of generic theory that it's going to work for all subjects, immediately I'm I'm, I'm skeptical. So this this is this, this is a a big feat that they're going for here, right? Right. So they they have like a third part as well, which they call the the analysis of knowledge systems. So they have these three parts coming together, not analysis of uh, communication, analysis of behavior, and then analysis of knowledge systems. And with the knowledge system idea, um, their, their argument is you can't design effective communication for, for a concept if you don't fully understand the concept you're trying to communicate. Right. And then they also say um, if you understand something about how different concepts might be related to one another, then you understand something about how they should be taught. So um, they, they give the example of, um, this is a good one actually, we can, can play this as a game because I don't think I spotted <laughs> it when I read it straight away. Okay. Um, uh, what is the what is the example they give? I think it's um, how are uh, large and blue related? Large and blue. Okay, so I, I don't like it when guests do this, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> not happy. Daisy Christodoulou was asking me some kind of some dodgy verb thing I never heard of in my life. Oh, I bet she was. <laughs> right. Um, so large and blue. Um, they they could both be adjectives. Yes, exactly. So they're both adjectives. Oh, okay, that's um, a strong start. Good. I'm happy with that. Good. And if you want an easier one, how are red and blue similar to each other? Okay, so so they 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 could be both colours. It could be both colours. So the, it's. Uh, if you're trying to teach uh, something about how you teach red is going to be similar to how you teach blue in virtue of the fact that they're both colors. Okay, something yes. about how you teach red is going to be similar to how you teach large in virtue of the fact that they're both adjectives. OK. Um, and so what and this becomes it, we should probably even pause for a moment here because this that last part is essential to understand. Essentially, they're saying that there could be a finite number of categories into which anything you're thinking of teaching, totalitarianism, simultaneous equations, verb conjugations, might fit. And so if you can identify which category the thing you want to teach fits into, immediately you know something about how to communicate it. Wow. Cogn cognitive science doesn't offer us anything like that. In fact, no. I think no one's ever offered anything like that. And it dramatically simplifies the act of teaching or the design of teaching. You know, the, your planning work shrinks to almost nothing. Jeez, how, how big's this bloody book, Chris? Are, are it's they pretty big. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, okay. Wow. All right, okay. That, I mean, again, big claim, but I'm, I'm willing to go with it for now. And, th and th just to be clear on this one, Chris, that are, are they going so far as to say that for anything you can think of, there is 
a most effective way of, of communicating it or teaching it or, or, or is it not going quite as far as that? Um, sort of. So it, it starts to get a bit complex and a bit more nuanced now. Um, see if I can pick it apart in my own head. They, so first of all, just on the topic of how difficult this is to read again, <laughs> Bob Dixon's introduction, his foreword is fantastic. Um, he's, he says that there are things that people will often like, say to him about theory of instruction, um, like complaints that they have about it. And one of them is that it's impenetrable. It's unreadable. <laughs> yeah. um, which isn't, which isn't a good selling point for a theory of instruction, right? No. no, I mean, this is the common criticism, but his response to it is one I never considered before. And it's, it, it, it's, it, it's very interesting. He says, um, I love this. I tweeted it out the other day when I read it. Um, I believe that, Theory of instruction, Engelman and Carnine's theory of instruction makes absolutely perfect sense to the audience for whom it was intended. And at this point, I assumed that the audience was going to be some sort of like academic, yes, uh, psychology, uh, d- d- yeah, um, psychology academics of some, yes. of some description. Uh, no, and he finishes off with it, perfectly intelligible to the, pe- the audience for whom it was intended, Engelman and Carnine themselves. <laughs> and the argument he's making is that this didn't exist before. He compares it to Newton's Principia, that without a pre-existing theoretical framework to even compare it to, as in this is better or worse, yes. when it's like a, a very new kind of theoretical paradigm, um, it's necessarily difficult to read and understand because, uh, first of all, you as a reader have no idea You've never thought this way before. You don't have a frame of reference for it. I'm on my fourth rereading of it, I think. And for the first <laughs> half, it is making perfect sense and it's glorious, but it's taken me a long time getting there. Um, whereas, um, and he also says that for Engelman and Carnine, they've actually been producing courses in line with these ideas without ever having written down the ideas before. So this enormous book, They've just been carrying around in their heads for two decades. Jeez. And then they finally try to get it onto paper in some form that is in some way intelligible. And yeah, the result is profoundly unreadable for that reason. <laughs> but so, you, would uh, you say you, would you say you've got your head around it now though? Fourth fourth time round? Increasingly so. I'm I'm getting better and better. I've got a lot more to learn still. But um and it's always um wonderful speaking to James and Diane Murphy and Oliver Glippy about their understanding of it because I think they're ahead of the game in some respects. Um, but just reading the words again now because we've got a book club at work coming up next week. Um, I, I, I've been I've been thinking about the people who are approaching the ideas in, in this little group for the very first time, uh, and I, I can just like see myself ten years ago when I was struggling with it. It's just, I know it's going to make no sense at all. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to sort of loop that background to the question you asked, which was, what was the question you originally? <laughs> well, I, I'm interested. It is related. I, I, I still haven't got a sense of, of how it works and, and how, how it, how it, I, I get how you're saying it differs to cognitive science in the, yeah. in the sense that it gives some actual recommendations. And I'm fascinated by the idea that, as you say, it, it could in theory give a recommendation well, what does it? It, it? it can suggest the most effective way to communicate or, or teach that was any, it, the anything most that you can way. think of. Yeah. <clears throat> so, OK, so they've developed this theory. But up until this point, they have been not designing a theory, but designing programs, instructional programs 
that they're trying to make as effective as possible. Okay. So they've they've got these initial assumptions. Um, and I want to actually note down your question before I get it. <laughs> uh, okay. So they've got because I think there's one more part to understand before getting to the answer there. Um, they've got these initial assumptions that a learner can learn from the environment, and that this also means um, and for that that means you need to. And analyze the environment, communications, you need to analyze the learner behavior responses, and you then need to analyze uh, knowledge systems, because if you don't know about the knowledge content, you can't design effective communication. They then um, create two new initial assumptions about the learner, any learner, any age. Um, they say, one, the learner can identify uh, features of some example of a concept. So in other words, if you show them a pencil, they can see that it has a particular position, length, color, and so on. If you, They can see that it has a functional use if you demonstrate that to them. And then if you change the pencil in some way, painting it a different color, moving it to some new position, the learner can see that those features have changed. Okay. So they can see features of an example. The, the second <clears throat> is that when you show, show the learner multiple examples of the same concept, um, and the features of each example are perhaps a bit different in some way, different positions, lengths, colors, whatever it is. Uh, the learner is able to identify which features ultimately belong to the concept, uh, belong to the concept uh, based on the sameness. So what is the same each time? And they're able to generalize from this. So the first assumption says something about what people can learn. And the second one says something about how they learn it. So they have these and is two this, sorry, Chris, to interrupt. Um, again, th this may be way off here, but is this, is this kind of related to variation theory? Would this be a, a, a similar kind of idea that we're, we're learning things through sameness and kind of controlled difference? Yes. Or is, is, it exactly but I, is. So. But, it's, but developed independently, right? It's not as if Engelman's drawing upon that work. This is just and part, of the, part of the theory that kind yes. of fell out. I see. And so much more comprehensive as well. So you have this comprehensive theory of instruction which basically says exactly the same things that variation would say to you. And it's completely in line with all of the ideas from cognitive science, um, which is enormous and, and goes further and does things that neither of those do on their own. Gee, so it's, it's kind of a best of with, with extra features on into the mix as well. It's, it's taking the best of everything out there yeah. and some extra stuff, but it's been developed independent of all that. E exactly. And, so this idea about does it therefore suggest that this is going to be the most effective form of teaching? Well, what they do is say, um, <clears throat> so they wanted to create a scientific approach to developing their, their programs. So they say that there the are two things that can vary, the communication and the learner. Um, the knowledge isn't going to vary. Um, so you can vary the communication, vary the learner. If both are allowed to vary freely, then that's going to create problems for you. So you're not going to be able to uh, test test things out and then progress forwards. So what they do is they decide to they they take the all of these assumptions we've said so talked about so far, and from these assumptions, these axioms, they derive a set of just five principles about what communication should look like. And they say that if the communication follows these five principles, then it must be logically faultless. So there is no way that a learner with these, with this two, uh, two attributes 
to their learning mechanism could possibly fail to understand what we're trying to communicate um, because the communication has been designed perfectly uh, based on these assumptions. And then from there, if communication does fail, if, if somebody doesn't learn something, they assume that that is a problem with the, um, they assume that it's a problem with the, the learner, but they assume it's a problem with the learner in the sense that the learner is missing some prerequisite knowledge, which they assume the learner had. So they redesign the communication or the, the sequence of learning so that the learner gets everything that they need to be able to understand the, the new thing that they wanted to teach. And ju- just just, um, in t- just in terms of a history of this, Chris, um, you say this was originally uh, programs before it was, it was ever a book. So this is it's kind of just is, is it a load of experiments going on here that they, they come up with this? This will be a good way of doing it. They test it out and then tweak one thing, try it again with another group. And is, is that it? Is it kind of a, a very kind of yeah, theory that developed quite practically through experimentation? I think we talked about this a bit that. The last time I was on, or, or the first time, I can't remember it because the the the, less, the one lesson we talked for three hours about was based <laughs> on a lot of these ideas, and it was um yeah they were they were part of um I mean they were going before this I think it was the Provider Engelman schools I think they'd originally set up ah, where some yes. of these ideas were being tested out so Engelman was originally a behavioral psychologist and he was approached by a, a marketing company where did be a, a consultant for them. And the question they had was, how many times does a child have to see or hear something like a jingle before they'll remember it? And the idea was they were trying to figure out uh, exactly how much they should be advertising in order to get kids to um, you know, want something or remember something. And, you know, he did the research, he figured it out, and he just had this moment of thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be better if this knowledge were being applied to something noble like education rather than, you know, pester power? So um, that sort of starts them off into this journey of trying to build out educational programs, uh, teams up, I think, for a bit with Carburider. And uh, there's, there's more to the story. I'm sure I'm missing out. Um, but then, yeah, they when they get into project follow through, this billion dollar uh, research program in the early 60s, they have this opportunity to work with uh, it's probably thousands of schools. Um, so tens of thousands of students across thousands of schools. There's a lot of opportunity for trialing things out and just improving. They used to field test everything that they did. So before they released, uh, before they released a program for sale, they would um, test it out with a bunch of schools. They'd be getting feedback from teachers and then they'd be geared up to release uh, an improved version of the product uh, to a second wave of schools for another wave of trials. Um, and Engelman always had this philosophy, and I'm still struggling to remember where I read this and try to find the quote. There was such a good example of um, when it when it does fail, we'll try to make, you know, if we fail to make it logically faultless, if that could be the problem, then we'll try to make the smallest change possible and see if that makes a difference. Where other people sometimes, he's got this example of a head teacher calling him and saying, this isn't working, I think it's because of this reason, and um they were essentially sort of thinking too deeply um and imagining that the entire uh, paradigm needed to be thrown out and have a paradigm shift, a revolution. And then we would just say, well, you know, what if we just try this tiny tweak first? And then suddenly you go from zero percent understanding to a hundred or something like that with a small change. Um so that but that doesn't mean that any of their 
programs are necessarily the most effective methods of teaching. It doesn't mean that anything you create is necessarily going to be logically faultless. So actually, you, you, and I'm still partly getting my own head around this, but there is a sense within which, um, some of the recommendations that are made, they could still be taken in a number of different directions. You could still design lots of different approaches which will share very similar features because they've been designed with the same uh, principles in mind. And some of them, for different reasons, might still be better than others. But they're all probably going to be better than what you're going to achieve if you're not following these principles at all. This might be an impossible question to, to answer, Chris, but I don't suppose you could bring this to life with it a bit of a kind of a practical example or just give us a bit of a sense from from just some area, whether it's mathematics or whether it's uh, just kind of a more generic example, just so we can get a sense of what this kind of communication, this instruction or, or the, this kind of approach might might look yeah. like. So I actually, so I think actually the, the very first interview you did with me is probably the best example I'm ever going to be able to offer people, um, which is also written up in the, the blog series, My Best Planning, parts four. But coincidentally, last week, um, um, I was in a school and I, I was there for, for one purpose, but while I was there, um, the, 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 so one of the, the math teachers had, um, asked if I could come and be in their cover lesson. And this is someone that I know quite well. Um, and so we were stood outside the classroom waiting uh, for this class to come. Uh, year 11 class, so I'm told, uh, on grade three, they'd like them to get grade fives. Um, so that, that's the group. And um, the teacher said to me, okay, so what should we do then? Do you want to take this one or should I? <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna do it. Uh so okay. So and then they started saying, oh so it's a year eleven class, they're doing simultaneous equations by elimination. Um they probably had a couple of lessons. Um yeah, grade three, but you know, trying to get grade five. <laughs> simultaneous equations that thing that I spoke to three hours with Craig about. Yeah, yeah. I've heard about a lot. So um, you know, can they solve one step equations? Well, you know, yeah, they, they better be able to ask them. No hope in the exam. Okay. Um, can they, how's their negative arithmetic? Well, they'll be able to do some things, but not others. So, okay. So we could avoid negatives. Will they have many whiteboards? Yeah, they'll, they'll have many whiteboards. Chris, do you want to teach us that? So, yeah, can we give it a go? <laughs> um, and this is a group I've never met before. And this is, I actually did something similar last year, um, with, uh, in, in, in a school nearby, but it was teaching a year 11 class, uh, completing the square. Uh, and that was a top set class. This is very different. It was, uh, obviously, um, not very close to the top set. And it, it, it was, it was a very interesting experience. I, I did it very similar to how I talk about it on the blog. Um, and a few things that really meant a lot to me. One was being able to say to this group of strangers, uh, and I know absolutely nothing about their prior mathematical learning. Um, I'm going to make you the same promise I make all my students. If you play along with everything I ask you to do, if you do everything that I ask you to say, then this thing, which probably seems really confusing and complicated right now, I can, I can make this so simple that you cannot fail to learn it. I can absolutely guarantee that you will learn this. And if at any point I ask you a question and you can't answer that question, I can tell you right now that that's my fault for asking you that question at that moment in time. It's not your fault. 
Um, so whenever any question does go wrong, don't even worry about it. That's just giving me better information about what questions to ask you next. Let's go from there. And I mean, that's, also, that's, that's a good, that's a good sell that, Chris. I like that. That's, you could imagine you. kids, because these are potentially kids, negative experience maybe in maths, low confidence in maths, perhaps yeah. been taught the same things over and over again and it's just not stuck for exactly. whatever reason. So, okay, yeah, I could imagine them being on board for this. Oh, sorry, go on. What were you going to say? Well, I don't know if we talked about this before, but this means so much to me because in my first month, my mentor sat me down and said, you know, Chris, you've got to be able to tell, you know, my, my class is just out of control. You've got to be able to tell these kids to sit down, shut up and listen to you. And, you know, sit down, shut up, listen to me. And I promise that you're going to learn this. And after having thought about it, my response to her was, hey, I don't think I can make that promise. And actually being able to make that promise is so empowering as a teacher. And it's what we get into teaching for. It's what we want. It's what we believe um, the students are capable of. Most of us are filled with a profound sense of, of their potential. And we want to help them realize it. It's so disheartening when we feel we're missing something that would help them realize it. I, I think so it's interesting, and it's interesting as well because I mean I, I've said similar things in the past to, to students, but I'll be honest with you, I'm yeah. not a hundred percent believed it myself. I've, I've thought to myself, there's a chance you might get this if you listen, blah blah blah. But I know it's a hard concept, and you yeah. know it, it could go either way. But you genuinely believe this, right? Because you believe in this in the in the theory of instruction so much that you genuinely believe that it it can't really go wrong, right? There's no way that they can fail to learn it. Um, there, <laughs> that's, there is, that's incredible. That there, there is a version. There's a, there's a video that I, I, I play for some teachers in, in a version of training that I do, where we just look at the um, start of one of my lessons. Um, I look at the start of a lesson from a video that used to be on like, teachers' TV, that kind of thing. And the teacher in that lesson, what what does she say? She says. Um, uh, I can't remember the exact word, but she, she's talked, she's trying to like introduce what the topic is going to be. Um, and she says something, she says something which sounds like she's not confident they're going to learn it. Right. And then she even like doubles down on her lack of confidence by following <laughs> it up with, or at least we're going to try to anyway. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah. If I were in your class, I wouldn't be filled with confidence yes. right now. It is. It, it's, so, but, okay, so you asked like a practical example. How does this work? Um, every time, I mean, there were some questions I asked and 50% weren't getting it or 20% weren't getting it. But then that gave me the information to tweak what I asked next and now 100% get it. Can you remember and, how, you, how you started it by just your start of interest? This one. Well, yeah, what was your first question yeah. to the kids? I decided that the first thing I needed to make sure was that they could interpret something like five brackets three. Uh, But I needed them to interpret that and the word evaluate. Because a a lot of people will say, you know, work this out or tell me the answer to this. And of course, it's not it's not a question. So I needed them to know what evaluate means. I mean, give me a value. Give me a number. I'm always looking for a number when I say evaluate. So in this case, and I give them one example. So five brackets, three. um, When I say evaluate that and what goes here in this box I've drawn on the board is number 15. Okay, so your turn. Five brackets ten. Oh, and just on that, you're you're literally, and again, because this all you know, this fascinates me, Chris. I I love getting into the weeds of this. With that five brackets three, you're just telling them the answer to that, right? And then you're giving them the 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 five brackets two. You're not saying five brackets three, 
Emma, what do you reckon the answer to that is? Ben, what do you reckon? Are you just getting straight to the point with that when you're instructing them of that one and then giving them a follow-up question to try themselves? Is that right? Absolutely. I had like 25 minutes with them. I wasn't about to waste their time. <laughs> I'm just, right. I, I just need to know what, what that if they can interpret that. I need to know that they understand what that means. If they don't, then I'm going to do something different. But provided between what they've done before and my example on the board, if they've got it, they've got it, we're going to move on. Maybe do one more just to check. What if I change the five to a seven? Okay, you've got this. You can see that this just means multiply. So what's the next one? The next one is, okay, I've got five X on the board. Um, and if I say X is equal to three, and then I say substitute for X or substitute that into the expression, then what I mean is write this. And again, the way most people will approach that is, if you say substitute three into five X, then you're looking for 15 as the final result. I'm not, I'm looking for five brackets three. And I make that clear by showing them that. And then, and then once I've shown them, I'll give them one to try. And I did this. Um, I think I said, okay, so if X substitute that into our expression. And I think one person literally just wrote seven on their whiteboard. So I can see there's one person that hasn't got it. So we're going to need to try this again. So what if it's um, 17? So I, so I, I also show them, okay, if it's seven, then actually it should have been five bracket seven. So now what if X is 17? Okay, now you've got it. Okay, what if it's not five X anymore? What if it's 238 X? What about now? Okay, every single one of you has got it. Great. You, you can substitute. I just need to know that you can substitute. I already know that you can multiply and you can interpret the, the brackets. So now we're going to move on to the next thing. So I'm, I'm very quickly trying to evaluate what, what they do and don't um, know and then going from there. And you, you can see how there'd have to be something cognitively wrong going on if you can't yes. follow those instructions. And then all that we're doing is we're just piecing it together. We're just assembling it. Can I, can I just ask that? Again, I'm always fascinated when I when I work with kids that I've never met before. There's kind of it's kind mm. of a bit of a honeymoon period, but it is a, it's a honeymoon period that that can go wrong as well, particularly if it's if the kids have never experienced anything like like this before. So if I do something like silent mm. teacher for the first time with a group, like the, the looks that they give me for the first about 20, 30 seconds when I'm not speaking, they're like, who, who the hell's this? What what's going mm. on? What 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 are the kids' kind of reactions? To this, because I'm assuming they've never, they've never been taught like this before. Would that be right? Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I suppose probably not. But also, like what? Because all I'm really doing is asking them to respond to questions. Mm. Uh, so there's nothing really that alien about it. I'm just trying to break it down in a very, uh, in a way that there's no moment at which the communication can possibly go wrong. Also, each of these, like speaking about the theory of instruction, each of these is an example of a, a transformation concept. So because it's a transformation concept, and I know that they're transformations, that tells me something about how to communicate them. And it's the same for every single one. And for every single thing I want to teach, that's a transformation. What, what does that I, mean? I, so I what, what, does, what, does, what does transformation mean in that sense? Um, so, so transformation is where there is... Um, an endless series of stimuli. So, so most of the, the basic concepts, there's a really finite uh, range of responses that you can possibly get from pupils. So uh, for something that's categorical in nature, uh, your initial instruction would involve asking things like, um, is this a prism? And the only responses you can possibly get to that are yes or no in the beginning. 
uh, the transformation is particularly different because it's got an infinite number of possible responses that you can get. So, for example, um, depending on what I set x equal to, there's an infinity of possible responses that I could um, be looking for. And it almost invariably involves taking the, like the, the stimulus, what you can see from the environment, what's been presented to you by the teacher, and turning it into something else. So with uh, five brackets three, I'm looking for you to turn that into 15. And like that concept that sits underneath there, multiplication, is the thing I'm hoping you'll learn. That's what I want you to learn. Um, when I've got five X, and when I present to you five X, and I say X is equal to three, and then I give you a signal, which in this case is substitute, um, all those things should combine so that you transform five X into five brackets three. And that's what I'm again hoping, looking for you to learn in that moment. Um, so there's there's a particular way of teaching anything that looks like that. Um, expanding a single bracket is a very good example of this. I think expanding single brackets is both overtaught and undertaught at, at the same time. It's overtaught, and I think more more words are used to explain what's happening than are needed. More examples are used than are needed. It's made more difficult than it needs to be. Um, but I think it's undertaught because once you uh, take this approach to teaching it, there's so much you can do with it that is so easy. For example, um, you can get bottom set year seven kids to expand a bracket which has three or four terms inside of it without showing them what to do. <laughs> what, do you mean? what do you mean? So um, let's say so. there was um, a girl in a functional skills group that um, I also saw in this the same school. And she struggled, she she couldn't answer this. She couldn't expand this bracket. She had no idea what to do. Um, and so I took her through this very short sequence um, uh, for, for explaining what to do. And then she was able to do it. And then you can just modify, you can test that a couple of times and then modify your example just a little bit. So you could um, have four brackets, three X plus five. And then once she's expanded that successfully, you then ask, okay, um, you haven't seen this before, but see if you can expand this. Whatever you think is right here is probably right. Four brackets, three X plus five plus 10 Y. And there's only one thing different about these two examples, which is the plus 10 Y on the end. And based on everything you've learned up to this point, she's learned the rule that you multiply what's outside by everything that's inside. There's actually, if, if you're going to take a guess, there's only one guess you're going to take, and it's probably going to be right. But I didn't tell you how to do it with three terms inside. And how frequently um, do you see questions like that come up in textbooks or in typical maths classrooms? The, the range of variation is very narrow compared to what is actually achievable, even by... Um, some of our typical lowest detainers, provided uh, general arithmetic is is, a, is always a barrier, but provided you simplify some of the arithmetic for people, the actual concepts are very very easy to learn. That's fascinating. And just just back to um, your your twenty five minutes. How, how far did you get with the class, Chris? Can you remember what what, what was happening towards the end? Ooh, so yeah, this this is a story that ends only half well, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, actually, th th there's another interesting thing happened in that lesson, um, which I think is worth talking about. So where do we get? 
we looked at adding equations in the same way that I talked about on the website, uh, but fewer. We, we covered fewer examples. We just did a few of them. Um, and one of them featured elimination. And then before I got into, um, and, and they, because they have had a couple of lessons on this as well, they, um, with, they've got all the different bits pieced together now and they know enough or some of them at least knew enough to say, okay, well, now we know we can work out, um, X on this point and then find Y. Um, but I was determined to try to make sense out of this concept for them. So I wanted to get into why this is a thing, why we talk about why we do it. Um, and so very quickly went through a sequence with them around, um, now here's, here's an equation. Can you just solve this two-step equation for me on your whiteboards so I can see that that's, whether or not that's a thing you can do? Okay, you can all do that, great. So let's say you've got something like 3x plus 7 is equal to 20. And then I just wrote a y after the 7, so it's now 7y rather than just 7 and 7. And then just asked, I did ask actually, can you solve that one as well? I asked it because I know they would feel like they couldn't. Um, and, and you know, they, they all said no. And I said, okay, I'm going to make this really easy for you to identify when an equation can be solved and when it can't. If it's got one unknown, one letter, it can be solved. If it's got more than one unknown, it can't be solved. And that's it. Uh, you might not be able to solve it if it's only got one unknown, but it can be solved in theory. So let's like, test that a few times. Um, all perfect. They all like got, got that idea until um, I, I was trying to show them something that looked difficult so that they could feel really proud of themselves. You know, 17z plus 34 equals 131p. Um, can this equation be solved? No. Okay. What if I do this? And I rubbed out. This is a terrible idea, given that I didn't know the class in hindsight. But I rubbed out 131. Now, can this equation be solved? So Half what is what, just what what is it now? Sorry, what's what have we got? Equation? It's now 17z plus 43 is equal to p. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, the problem is that it's equal to 1p, but the 1 is now secret. And that's a massive problem for most students. Massive problem. So, I had half of them saying yes, half of them saying no. I asked one person, you said, okay, you said yes, it can be. Talk me through how that would work. And then, as soon as she had to try and explain it, she realized that's incorrect. It can't be solved. And I thought, okay, let's not believe at this point. It can't be solved. That easy. Tell me why it can't be solved. A bunch of your hands go up. First one, um, well, because that's just a random P in it. Uh, okay, I'm not sure how to process that response. And then the second person started talking about, oh, is, is it because like, P is the answer and we don't know what the answer is yet? No, there's no questions and answers here. What else we got? And then somebody else tried something. And what I saw all three people doing was almost just, they, they understand that they're confused, but typical, and you get this a lot to typical mass classrooms, don't know how to articulate their, their confusion. It's a very awkward conversation and you don't want to say, no, that's wrong and punish somebody for putting the hand up. And so I just, so what I said, to them, guys, you are massively overthinking this. Uh, I've already told you the answer to this question. That equation can't be solved. How do you know that equation can't be solved? Because it's got two and because it's got two unknowns. It's got more than one unknown. Um, how is this an interesting experience where the confusion was caused by the secret one? That's always problematic. But then, it was almost like they've been habituated into um, trying to almost think more like, deeply than you, you necessarily have to 
It's always like trying to find like the trick answer um, and not really being sure and thinking surely it's not that easy uh, as it were. And it made me think of Dan Willingham's point in his book um, that we need to create the conditions for successful thinking to take place. And the level of thought I'm asking for here is incredibly straightforward. Apply a rule that I've explained to communicate it to you. If there's more than one letter, it can't be solved. If there's only one letter, it can be solved. I mean, you have to disambiguate between when you've got an X on both sides in the future, but I'm keeping it simple for now. I control the examples. Um, and that, that, that is so easy that you can't go wrong in your initial thinking. But then I think part of the misunderstanding of the, the theory is people see the starting point and they think that that's the end point. And they don't actually realize that what we're going to do is build up incredibly complex and sophisticated thought through lots and lots of little parts uh, built up steadily and inexorably over time. Yeah, it's, I, it's it's worth just pausing on that point for a second, because this is, again, whether you term it atomization or well, whatever you call it, I think that's a, that's a misconception I run into um, a lot, that this breaking down of something complex, the breaking down is done so that the complex can be understood, right? Like the breaking down is the first part of it, and then it's putting it back together so it can be understood more deeply or more comprehensively or whatever you want to say the breaking down of it isn't isn't the end of the story that's the necessary step to 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 understanding the more complex at least that's my interpretation would that be how you see things yeah and there's there's several different important things that made me things that i read that made me very comfortable with that idea um one is uh i mentioned earlier it's dan willingham's point about inflexible knowledge where um, he, I mean, he's got this great line at the uh, towards the end of the paper he put into the AFT about this, um, something like frustration that. Uh, what, what was this example of it? I can't remember. It was, um, it's something like frustration that a, a student can do one thing but but not another. I think he gives a concrete example. Is a bit like frustration or like frustration that their um, knowledge is inflexible and isn't transferring to lots of different contexts is a bit like being frustrated that a child can add up but can't do long division yet. And it's not like there's anything wrong with them. It's just they haven't learned that next bit yet. So you could think about, um, you know, Pythagoras theorem was always a good go to thing for math teachers to think about. Uh, you know, you learn how to find the length of a hypotenuse, but you haven't yet. You, when you're asked, you know, what is the length of one of these um, missing legs, you the short size, you can't do it. You're not able to manipulate mm. the equation or the idea or, or whatever. Um, and some people will say, well, they've just got rote knowledge. And Dan Willingham would say, no, no, they've got inflexible knowledge. They can apply an idea in a meaningful way in one given context, but especially so if they identify that they can only apply it in the case of a yes. triangle. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not flexible yet. They've got a lot more to learn. They've taken the first step. Um, the other is um, a quote from a, a 1996 paper um, by John Anderson, which is brilliant. A simple theory of complex cognition. Oh, days out. 
Now, Chris, well, let me pause you on that. So I, I've read this. This needs to be done under the Trades Descriptions Act because this is not a simple theory. I can't get my head around this one. I've tried a <laughs> co- couple of times on this bloody paper. Yeah, go on. Give, give me a quote from that one. Oh, well, the only bit, because the only bit we need is, um, as I say, Daisy used to love using this quote, and I do think it's a good one. Um, All that there is to intelligence is the simple accrual and tuning of many small units of knowledge that in total produce complex condition uh, co- complex cognition that's the whole nice. is no more than the sum of its parts but it has a lot of parts that is nice yeah i like that so like, those things got me really comfortable with the idea that starting at this re- starting at a point which is so simple um that i'm just going to ask you to write five brackets three i'm not even going to ask you to do the next bit and multiply them together and being okay with that uh they really helped they in, in the beginning i thought i was teaching it'd be like you're teaching people to parrot back things you know that's not real learning that you know teach a monkey to do this um it was the idea that actually you want to make it so simple that they can't possibly fail to learn and then you're going to piece together thousands and thousands of pieces of knowledge over time concepts and facts and processes um it it gave me a very long-term strategic view of teaching that i didn't have in the beginning let me ask you this, Chris. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by that example, but I, I'm thinking to myself. So I, I, I see that the, the the kind of approach you took in in that 25 minutes of of having having elements of what I would call atomization, with also mm. elements of, of variation in there, with your careful choice of your examples, mm. um, and your non-examples, and then also breaking it down. Now that that is me seeing that having not read any Engelman. So my question is, 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 is all this, is, is there something in Engelman's, uh, Engelman's work that isn't available elsewhere that, that I'm missing? Or is it just the fact that Engelman presents it all together and you don't have to grab a little bit from variation, a little bit from atomization, a little bit from cognitive load and, and so on and so forth? Am I missing something by not diving into Engelman? Um. It, it depends on it depends on how you frame it because yes you're saying that you can sort of recognize um these things in there and i think that is true and i recognize it as well but would i think to present examples in this way had i not read theory of instruction and, and ideas from um their, their di programs as well and i'm not certain i would have done um also, um, something I'm not sure is in variation theory is the idea of concept chaining for teaching processes. So the idea that, um, so this is where I think, for example, worked example problem pairs can be improved upon. If I were doing a worked example problem pair for solving simultaneous equations, I would, and tell me if this is not how you do it, you do it very differently. Um, I would probably treat it as a process. Either from the either from the start or teaching as a backwards process from the from the bottom, something I've tried in the past. But nevertheless, it's a process, and I'm going to go through an example, and then you're going to try another example, like next to this one on the board. Now maybe do another one, then you do one, and and, and so forth. Um, but still, you're you're treating it as a step by step process, and everything that you do is just a step in this process, and and that's problematic, I think, because that means the only time you see addition and subtraction of equations, for example, 
um, is as a step in this process rather than thinking of it as a concept in and of itself. Um, no, so I would... So for me, I would do all of that, but beforehand would have been the atomization where each of those things would have been isolated. So mm -hmm. that step would have been treated as a single entity with variation built into that. So the different ways that could be presented and so on and so forth. So that when it comes together in the example problem pair, every step's familiar. And the way okay. I, the way, I, the way I think about worked examples now, Chris, is that and this has been a bit of a revelation to me, but this may be incredibly obvious to you and, and maybe many listeners, is that by the time that my kids get to do an example problem pair, I want mm. every single thing in that worked example, every step to be familiar to students. Everything they see should be familiar. So their attention is on how the familiar fits together in this novel way, as opposed to what the hell is that? What the hell is that? And how do these two things fit mm. together? Because for me, that that's when it becomes problematic. That's when it's too much to attend yeah. to. I, I want the attention to be on the order and the connections as opposed to thinking hard about each of the steps, if, if that makes sense. That, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I think you're right that that does sound like a very similar approach in the end. Um, can I try and catch you, catch you out with another one then? Yeah, of course. Go for it. How would you go about um, teaching uh, kids to expand the pair of brackets? Okay, a pair. <laughs> right, okay. So we're talking like a like a x plus three, x minus two kind of thing. Mm, yes, but no. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I. So actually, I said that something went wrong in that that lesson. What went wrong is that um, there was a set work there was a set worksheet uh, which after I stopped, we just let the kids start working through and. To my unending frustration, the very first exercise asked them to solve y uh, y minus two x is equal to six. Y plus two x is equal to six. Oh wow! And this this is supposed to be the first exercise, the easy one in the worksheet, <laughs> and it has three problems with it that make it difficult. The first problem is that one, two, and six appear in both equations. They're very similar, so you're not getting to see much variation in the pattern mm. as you work through it. The second is that the negative two x came on top instead of on the second equation. It's just one of those things like how seven is a difficult number to work with. Um, it's easier if you have the negative on the second line. Uh, and the third, the worst one, the most egregious ever, was having one y in both equations because that obviously led to the secret ones which meant that half the class wrote y equals 12 instead of 2y equals 12. Ah right yes. So you have to like, deal with secret ones as a wrong thing so you said I think you give the example x plus 2x plus 3 um, I would never ever ever start with that because that's one of the hardest examples you can give people because of the secret ones in front of the x. Mm, okay yes. Um, and even number one as a as a number to use in an example is problematic yes it's the identity of multiplication so you don't even see when multiplication took place because of it so you want numbers like um, i also avoid twos because you know, two squared is mm. four i, I yep. avoid one yep. two and four and i use numbers like three five and ten which are really easy to work with ah that's interesting so um, so literally your first example of expanding double brackets or a pair of brackets w would have a coefficient on the x of yeah like three or five it wouldn't be exactly yeah. single. that's fascinating that do, do you know what? just just on that at the risk of a slight tangent i have a similar thing well i don't know if it's similar but this has just been on my on my head so i, I might as well just say it to you now um I, mm. um enlargements 
So I've been I've been thinking about this a lot yes. uh, recently. I've been analysing um, data on um, diagnostic questions for for where kids go wrong across different topics, and enlargement's a fascinating one. Um, what you tend to get whenever the centre enlargement isn't the origin, a classic error kids will do is let's say a shape needs enlarging by a scale factor of two, they'll just literally double mm. each of the coordinates of the vertices. And I used to think, well, what a daft what a daft error that is. But of course, that's a brilliant way of doing it if your centre mm. enlargement is at the origin. And, and which way do I always start mm. teaching enlargements? I start with the centre of enlargement yes. at the origin. Whereas, of course, that should be the kind of specialist case that we come on to later, like your secret ones exactly. are the special. But yeah. it's 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 counter. Well, it certainly was counterintuitive for me for well fourteen and yeah. a half years, and it took me to realise that it's interesting, isn't it, when you start thinking hard about these kind of things? Exactly. So, I mean, and this is also what that idea of logically faultless communication is about. Mm. Like, you you basically you presented them with a, a, a you know, stimuli in their environment. You presented them with examples where they've learned the rule, double the double the value of the coordinates, and they've yes. been able to do that because your presentation is not logically faultless. Yes. The, um, the, the where well, I talked about the girl who I showed how to expand a single bracket in this functional skills group, um, and what. What I didn't say is I actually got it wrong. Um, so I did two examples. I did, I did the first example, and I think I had 10 outside the brackets. And then I was like, do you, do you, see, do you see what I did? And she's like, I think so. so okay, let me let me do one more just to uh, make sure. Um, rubbed out, because we weren't using a mini whiteboard on the desk, rubbed out the number in front of the X and wrote a different one. And I showed her how that, how that changed the coefficient of X. And she's like, okay. So, all right, so I gave her the, the one again, four bracket cx plus five and then she wrote 30x plus 50 <laughs> yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, just stick at the zero that's and, my, yeah that's yeah, interesting that's that's my fault not yours um let me try this again <laughs> rubbed out the five sorry gone, went back to my example rubbed out the 10 wrote a five and showed how both numbers now changed and then she went back and said oh okay and now and then she actually said did you just multiply them or she probably said do you just times them yes. like, yeah i just times them I said, okay, and then went back and got they got it right. Twelve x plus whatever it be, fifteen. Um, so that's another thing that's so powerful about this method, which I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've just seen. I, I don't feel like I've seen this talked about in these terms in cognitive science or in variation theory. That if the learner does mislead something, it's invariably uh, a fault with the communication, fault with the teaching, not a fault with the learner, and that's enormously empowering. Not not only. You know, I, I don't mean this in the way that you know, naive 27-year-old me went into the classroom determined to be accountable for all my students' failings, but actually being like, completely unable to analyse why they're failing and what I need to do differently. I mean being able to look at what you've presented and say, oh, it's obvious why you've made that mistake. Of course, yes. that's my fault. Let me change this. Oh, that makes perfect sense now. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that that is enormously embarrassing. Jeez, that you, you know what? Yeah, I I, th I, th I think you're right. This this isn't something I've I've thought deeply enough about this this idea of faultless communication i mean for a start i mean as, as i wrote about in in how i taught maths i didn't think hard enough about my choice of examples but even after i started thinking hard mm. about them i mean again i've <laughs> i've ta i've taught for now 15 years expanding double brackets my opening example have 
every single time had a coefficient of one in front of the x. Everything I've never even considered yeah. not doing that, Chris. Yeah. And it just and it just makes you think how many other things are out <laughs> there that it's and it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of my attention in the last couple of years has been on sequences of examples. So how, what's the next example after this one? What's the next example? And, and how can I vary things to draw kids' attention to the critical features? But of course, what what's the first example is 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 the key question to be asking. What because that that lays the foundations, doesn't it? And it, and if if students start seeing things that aren't really exactly. there or, or making connections that shouldn't really be there, it, it yeah, it's it's not not the solid foundations you want to build things upon. So I, again, it goes goes back to my well, a, a kind of related question: Is this? Would you go so far as to say this, Chris? That the the whether it's Engelman's mm. theory or whether it's it's your uh, your view yourself that for for every concept and let's just stick to maths for now there is mm. the the best example to start with would would that be a fair mm. assertion um probably not like the the definitive article best but certainly a set of examples that fulfill some criteria that belong to a set of like best examples to begin with and um, I, you know, I think you had Naveen Visby on here before, and I don't know if she talked about this, but she often talks about th- this idea a lot. Um, and it was from her that, that I first learned it, because she saw them using it in charter schools in the US. Um, but it is also, again, once again, it is in angle. So I, she loves the example of difference of two squares. Everyone starts with something like x squared minus 25 or minus 36. But of course, that's actually one x squared. So you you fail to recognize that it can be any square number in front of the x. And also, um, it's not just actually x squared, it's any even power on the x. So that gets overlooked. And um, that second number, that is a part of difference of two squares because it's actually, say, 25 times x to the power of zero. Zero is an even number. So you miss out the fact that there can be an x to the power of mm. some even number on the second one or a y or anything like that. So she likes that one a lot, and um, um, she tends to use Engelman's language when she talks, because, again, this is also contained within their theory of instruction. And the language they use is covertization. Now, I dislike this because, just just dislike when I'm, commun- when I'm talking to teachers about it, because it, it makes perfect sense, except on first blush, it just sounds overly technical, and it, it, it's not. What, what What they mean is, and it's also a bit kind of intuitive, because what they really mean is, you should start making all your examples overt. So try to avoid ones. And if you are going to use a one, write it in there, make it clear. Um, and then the process is about the process of covertizing. So over time, you make the ones covert again. Or using my slightly more playful language, you make them secret, which is why. In the, and, and I talk about instead what you should be doing as a teacher in the beginning, the thing you're probably not doing, which is revealing the secrets making it really clear where all these secret ones and other things are. And I think the language is just a bit more catchy. I like that. I'll, I, and I just, just whilst we're talking about Naveen, because you, you're absolutely right. It was, it was a, it was a real, uh, thought provoker when when Naveen was on because she talked a lot about um the booklets that she uh, creates and, yeah. and a lot of the the kind of scripting that, that that's part of this so I imagine that with with the theory of instruction as well as the examples that the language the teacher's using is 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 an important part of that would, would that be right yeah so I mentioned the principles earlier um one of them is called the wording principle and it says something about 
um, how you use language as a teacher. And what what like does does it go as as specific as when this example's up, you say this, and if the kids respond this way, you say this? Is is it a script? Um, the theory isn't. No, there's no scripting in the theory. Um, there, there are scripts in the programs that they created because they wanted to make sure that teachers would adhere to the wording principle. And if they didn't script it, they found that it, it wasn't even like a fear. They just found that teachers wouldn't. And I had the same experience myself where um, I had sort of prepared things in advance and had my little script and it's nothing fancy in my case. Um, just a few things to say. But as soon as I'd gone through this process I'd designed in advance and the student asked me a question, it felt so efficient and refined and all the waffling that I was doing as a teacher up until then disappeared. Uh, it felt like laser-like communication. And then a kid would put his hand up and ask me a question, which of course I'm not prepared for. And I spend the next five minutes trying to get my head around what I'm saying and what I'm going to say. And nobody is listening to me anymore, apart from the boy who first put his hand up. And it just felt like going back to um, like my old methods of just rambling and not making much all that much sense to my pupils. So um, the reason you would would script just script or you might script is because it avoids that temptation. And um, there's there's a couple of examples I sometimes now started using in training, which I found really effective, where I show um, what it looks like to do this right according to the principles. And what it looks like to do it wrong, according to the principles. And some of the variation in each case is about the examples that are presented. But the most entertaining variation is in what I say as a teacher. Because in the good example, it's very tightly controlled and very refined. And in the second example, it's sort of waffly and rambly in a way that I think most teachers identify in themselves. Um, I've I've got I want to try not tear this apart, but I, I want I want to set you a few challenges related to this this theory of instruction and and Engel's, Engelman's work in a second, Chris. But I wonder, are there any other key features of it that we've that we've not discussed that that you want to bring to light now? Um, is there anything else? Um, I suppose the I think we, we probably, I mean, there's so much. It, it, one of the challenges of it being so comprehensive is that, and I think this is exciting and daunting in equal measure. All the things that we talked about from cognitive science, even if they can be misapplied a bit too easily, it is a relatively short list still. And the the ideas themselves can be learned in a relatively short space of time. And lots of people have had lots of success communicating the ideas through conferences and 40-minute slots of research ed and so forth. The challenge with direct instruction is that it's so comprehensive that trying to learn it all, the good news is that you can actually pick up some really quick wins. Um, I often talk about using, I think Daisy said the same thing, using non-examples, talking about what something isn't. That's a quick win. and we've talked about some quick wins already, like avoiding the number one. And if you are going to use the number one, um, if you'd normally not write it like one X, write it in there to begin with and get rid of it later on. 
So there are little, there are lots of little quick wins like that. To be fair, are, are there any? Like, are there any others, Chris? Just whilst we're on quick wins, if people are listening, thinking, yeah, I want to start using a bit of this. Non examples, great one. Try starting with yeah, avoiding ones, twos, fours, and, and anything else that springs mm-hmm. to mind. I think we've covered a lot of them. The um, the animation is still a big one. Animation is actually quite hard to get good at. I think. Um, um, yes, we I never finished the question. How how would you go about? teaching uh kids to expand the power brackets well i was hoping you wouldn't come back to that because already i'm i'm, I'm behind you on it because i'm starting with the, the the one x but i would have i would have done some form of atomization beforehand so i would have ensured that for example students knew that let's say x multiplied by positive two is is mm-hmm. positive two x and two multiplied by negative three is is negative six and so on so that when i then modeled how to expand the first example using silent teacher and i would be gesturing as to the two terms i was considering when i then wrote the answer my students again their attention wouldn't be thinking of not necessarily where did that answer come from but they they, once they figured sorry once they figured out Hmm. where the answer came from they would have understood it because they would have recognized it as something we did as part of atomization, mm. if that makes sense. So my focus would yeah. be on a relatively conventional example. And again, I now realize that's potentially a mistake, but then the variation would then have come into the practice that followed. Mm. So that would be where the order of terms within the brackets would change, the signs would change and so on and so forth. So it would be a relatively straightforward one following the atomization. And then I would lean upon variation to draw upon the, the boundary examples and so on and so forth but i'm, I'm now you, nervous chris because i, I don't know what you're going to say to this i don't, I don't think there's any need to be nervous so you don't <laughs> use any kind of you don't use like the grid method for example set out in the grid oh i may do and um, it'll depend how i how i teach it what what i'm also doing now and this is um i don't know if you've um you've read joe morgan's mm. um compendium of mathematical methods book but what i'm what mm-hmm. i'm what i'm starting to do now is once i do silent teacher once with one way of doing it so let's say for example i do the classic um, multiply the two first terms together then the first and last mm-hmm. then the inner and outer and so on and so forth i will then do an alternate way perhaps using grid method or some of some other method and then we'll have two examples to compare and contrast at the end and we'll talk about the pros and cons and which may be suitable under different circumstances and so on so that yeah that would okay. be that would be my approach I, I, and the reason i say that you don't have to be nervous is uh, presumably <laughs> You're getting 100% success with that approach. With <laughs> well, it's faultless, Chris. It's logically faultless. Um, no, I am, I'm not getting it. I, no, I'm not getting 100%, no. And what about when you move on to having um, three terms inside one or more of the brackets? Um, my What what would the method be? Or w- would I be getting uh, 100%? Uh, yeah, if you then sort of throw in a three bracket, a three term bracket, do you still get a hundred percent then? Uh, no, 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 no. If uh, yeah, I would safely say the percent will be will be dropping a bit. But like you, I would be introducing that within a sequence. That wouldn't be a kind of separate example. So I would the first first time my kids saw a three term bracket, they would have been preceded mm-hmm. by a two term bracket, which had the same two terms as in the three term but that had an additional one in if that makes sense so they could attend to the differences and so on okay so 
I, and do you, do you treat that as an example that you show them how to do, or do you just ask the question? So they would have a go with that as part of the sequence um, without me explicitly mm. modeling how to do it, and then that will be something we then discuss as a as a whole class yeah. to see how they've got on. I feel like it's a job how interview. How does that this. I feel like it's a job interview. This <laughs> so I don't know if I want this job either. It's mixed. It goes mixed. It's... It's better than what I used to do um, in the sense that the first time, well, I'll I'll tell you two mistakes straight away I used to make. So one is that the the three bracket example would be not related to anything whatsoever. So essentially complete standalone. So the kids had nothing to compare Mm -hmm. it to. So that's a mistake I've rectified. And also the the three term one or the three bracket one, sorry, the three term one would be um extension work that only some of the kids got to so i try and rectify okay. both of those things now but yeah it's i, I certainly could not say it's 100 percent by any any stretch okay so um i'm going to to offer up a proposal for an alternative approach okay um, I'm, I'm interested re- really keen to um hear how it goes if you get an opportunity to, to try this out um i strongly suspect there will not be a child who fails. Um, and, and that would go for expanding with three terms as well um, without going through an example with them first. Um, and then the reason I selected this one is I've never seen anyone atomize this in the same way previously. So I'm usually pretty safe that people are going for grid or foil or yes. the monkey face or some crowd calls <laughs> or some version of it. Um, so this comes back to that idea of um, chain, chaining concepts together to form a process. So what you can do if you have two brackets is you can show somebody how to expand just the first bracket. And what I'm going to do is use the word expand uh, probably synonymously with uh, get rid of that bracket. I think that holds a policy, but if it doesn't, I change it. So we're going to get rid of that first bracket and the first bracket only. And the way you do that is you, let's say you have uh, 3x plus 5, 10x plus 2. Um, you take 3x and you're going to write that in front of 10x plus 2. And then you're going to have plus 5 in front of 10x plus 2. And you're done. So the second bracket appears twice. I see. Um, okay, yes. You've distributed the first one of the other two. You know when you factorize into two brackets, you always have this step where you've got um the same bracket appearing twice, if you if, if that makes sense. No no. Um, Not making sense. We're gonna ignore that then. It's basically <laughs> this, this this process is actually factorizing into a pair of brackets uh, in reverse. Okay. Um which is why I spotted what was going on. Uh, but if you do that, it, it, it's again, it's an example where kids cannot fail because it, this is now, this is no longer a process. It's a single, it's a transformation. And with transformations, it's immediately identifiable how the output results from the input. Um, it, it is literally reducible to um, write these symbols in this order. And again, some people balk at that at first because they see that and they think, well, that's not real thinking. Um but of course, what we're doing is making it impossible for students to fail. And we're creating lots of tiny steps that they'll eventually get better at. So this is all you teach them. All you teach them is how to distribute that first bracket. And that's as far as you go. So you're going to, so the right answer, if I use 
the word, will always look like something multiplied by a bracket, plus or minus something multiplied by the same bracket every time. And you're just practicing that. And they'll get the variation in there, start changing the different terms, see how it changes. Hey, why don't we throw three terms into the second bracket or four? It's going to make no difference because nothing changes. You just have one number outside of this three or four term bracket, plus or minus another number in front of this three or four term bracket. Um, so it's impossible for kids to get that wrong, no matter what set they're in, no matter what year group. Now, once they've, they've learned that, um, and, and you could do this in the same lesson or you can split this into a new lesson and you can show them something new. And the new thing you can show them is actually you don't even need to show them anything new because they've already learned how to do this. Probably you probably did this before. You've now got, um, two parts of this expression where you just have one term in front of a bracket and you've already seen how to expand that. We probably learned that previously. So if I now ask you to expand this part and this part, you should be able to do that quite easily. And once you're there, you've now got your, and you, you can even break that down into, you could ask, you could ask them, just expand the first bracket. Don't do both of them. Let's make this really easy. Just expand the second bracket. Okay, expand both brackets. You can set up the, the exercises any way you want. Really sort of isolate this and hone in on it. But eventually, once they have expanded both brackets, um, they'll now have four, an expression with four terms. And now this is really important. They've basically done. They've, they've fully expanded the, uh, the expression. And that again can be a stop point. There's no need to simplify. Or at some later point, um, assuming that we've already taught them how to simplify by collecting like terms, we could get to that point and then say, okay, um, oh, we, you know, Simplify this expression. Something again that I'm assuming they've been taught how to do before. Um, you could have starters, do nows in the lesson where you give them four term expressions and ask them to simplify. Um, you could even, because remember I explained how to do this previously, do this with three terms in the second bracket because they've also seen how to expand a single bracket when there's three terms in it. So for each of these things, there's this kind of like three steps to it. Uh, distributing the first bracket, distributing both brackets, or you can take them one at a time, and then the simplifying. The first couple of steps, it's the same thing each time. It's application of the distributive property, or what we tend to call expanding a bracket in the UK. And the last one's a different concept. Um, but that's all you need to know. There's two concepts. They can be studied in isolation. They can be studied in any order. And then you can start to chain them together. So you can do one, then two, or you can do two, then three, or eventually you can do one, then two, then three all together. But when you do it, like you said earlier with the simultaneous equations example, there's absolutely nothing new there anymore. You've not only, you've not only done it all before, you've done it in a, in, under conditions or in an environment where there's been significant variation. If I go back to some of our starting examples, we've probably made it so easy that it's just literally impossible to get this wrong now. And just just to make this explicit for me, Chris, just that that expanding the double brackets example, just tie that back to Engelman for me. So what what give give me the names um, 
of what you're doing there what what's the kind of transforming bit what's that that chaining bit just 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 label those those bits for me just so i can have it clear in my mind please so he's got a whole section on teaching cognitive routines um and a cognitive routine is what most of us would call a process it's something that has multiple steps to it and there are because it's further towards the back of the book i haven't read it recently so (laughs) Some of the detail will, will escape me. But when I've been thinking about this, it feels like there are at, at least at this point, my understanding has two different types of process. One is this um, almost inevitable step by step approach, like um, calculating a, a gradient. You inevitably have to find one point on the line, mark it, mark another point on the line, uh, determine the distance between the points, vertical and horizontal write them into a fraction. There's not really very many places to stop there along the way and introduce someone to a concept that's actually meaningful. Like, you can break it down and you can say we're just going to find points on the line and mark them. Um, You can just teach the bit about finding the distances, I guess, but it's not like a whole new concept in there. So ultimately, you are just going to be going through steps in this process. Whereas with the, the other thing I've talked about, concept chaining, that's where each thing that we normally think of as, as a step is actually in and of itself. It's a concept in its own right. Uh, adding together equations was another example from, from earlier. Substitution is an example from earlier. Multiplication is an example from earlier when we looked at simultaneous equations. And because it's a concept in its own right, it can be studied independently of anything else. It doesn't need to be a step in the process. Um but the process comes into being once you chain the concepts together. And now we're putting them into a logical order. And now we're getting from a start point to an end point. But it still doesn't have to be start at point one and end at point seven. You can start at point three and end at point five. And that, again, manages cognitive load, bringing us all the way back to like the, the ideas from cognitive science and what they provide us, explains why this is so effective. Okay, right. Okay. All right. Let me ask you this then. So I've got a question that I'm not happy at myself that I'm asking, but I have to ask it because I get asked this all the time whenever I start talking about atomization or variation and so on and so forth. And that's that's differentiation, Chris. So I assume with this approach that essentially everyone's everyone in the classes so if you take your year that year 11 class that, that you taught, yeah. everyone was everyone was doing the same thing, right? Um so mm-hmm how and again this this is me kind of asking it on behalf of the hundreds of people who asked me this question um how can you justify that in in the sense that some kids will grasp things quicker than other students just some kids will have different amounts of prerequisite knowledge and so on and so forth what does, does differentiation play a role in engelman's work or not um not really engelman um so well at least in his programmatic design um, kids were actually quite often in, in small groups, I think, for a lot of them. Uh, but in, in particular, they were in groups based on their prior knowledge. So the idea is you've got some requisite prior knowledge and now we're going to advance you through the next few things we want you to learn. Um, so really the differentiation came by putting people into groups based on prior knowledge and then you therefore study different things. 
And would you, but if we take this to a school context, so we take the year 11s that, that you taught for that 25 minutes, again, I would imagine that they, they were setted, but we all know that, you know, it's the, 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 the different amounts of mm. prerequisite knowledge for different, different areas of mathematics are incredibly wide in, in any given mm -hmm. set. Would you still see it working in, on a, in a practical level in a, in a standard kind of comprehensive school where, kids are setted would you see this also working in mixed attainment groupings so does it have a limit in in, in that sense mm -hmm. of course with the um the simultaneous equations example that you and i talked about the very first time that was in a mixed attainment year nine group in my school and that was a lesson where there, there were a few kids in that class who i felt hadn't learned anything from me all year yes. until these final weeks when we started going through this um so uh, usually the things that I find are holding people back is, is really basic stuff. It's, a, it's typically arithmetic and basic number work. So it's not knowing their times tables. It's not knowing how to fluently add and subtract negative numbers. It's not being able to manipulate fractions and make sense out of them. Uh, once those three things are in place, all the high-level concepts are, are incredibly straightforward. They're, they're much less information-dense. I think, than some of the really early stuff. And we just rush past the early stuff. So um, in this group that I took, for example, um, what were the range of differences I saw? So there were some people working through the worksheet, no problem. Uh, quite a lot of the group wrote 1Y, you know, Y equals 12 in response to the first one. Um, one person, uh, their negative arithmetic was actually quite poor. So when they added, they would add plus 2x, add a negative 2x, and kept getting 4x. And then when, so the, then I tried to change the order around. So it was the positive 2x on top and the negative 2x on the bottom. And still they looked at that and said, oh, okay, so it's just 2x, not 2x. So we had to, so that was a negative arithmetic problem. Um, another one, what happened with this other one? They got stuck with something and then, as we were trying to go through it, they'd again forgotten the really early stuff we did at the start of the lesson. So now we've got a, a memory problem. Um, they couldn't quite remember what to do in terms of substitution. They couldn't remember what to do if you've got five brackets three. Um, but again, it didn't take, I didn't have to show them much before they very quickly remembered what to do. And then they were able to go through the, the example on their own. Uh, but nevertheless, that's, a, that's an impediment that other people in the group didn't have. So, you know, what you could argue that there's differentiation there in terms of teacher retention, as an example. Um, but I, in an ideal world, I mean, these are year 11s. They've, they've been in school for 11 years. And we've got someone who can't add and subtract negative numbers. Um, someone who's never necessarily seen the steps broken down this way before. And um, half the class who look at why and don't realize that it's one why. These are not actually massive failings in terms of the only reason that mixture of attainment exists is because of the 11 years of teaching prior. There's nothing wrong with the kids in that room. Um, so if it, quite often some variants of differentiation feel like a, like putting a planter over a much more endemic problem, um, a problem with a solution. We know the solution. We know the solution. We just now need to get more people knowing it and applying it, uh, which is 
really exciting as well as it is daunting because the system is enormous. Um, and and then there's like a, there's another part with differentiation that worries me as well, which is the way it's often interpreted and talked about places profound burdens on individual teachers. Oh, absolutely. To, to, to manage an impossible situation. Um, and it's quite often not that necessary, I think. Um, which means, you know, we can still certainly offer opportunities for, and it also it really important. We haven't like even sort of touched on this idea yet, but direct instruction probably, um, it isn't going to cover absolute, or, you know, Engelman-Karnine's theory of instruction, sorry. It probably isn't going to cover, um, literally everything that you could do or be asked to do or ways in which you could be asked to think in the school classroom. Um, so you can differentiate by time, by teacher attention. Um, for some people in a certain condition, you could also um, ask questions where there is no guarantee anymore that you're not going to fail. And I don't mean, um, you know, study some content that's another level above, like it's not a classic case. I mean, those kind of little interesting mathematical problems, something that is novel and technically actually only relies on uh, the knowledge you've already learned, but is asking you to apply it in such a novel way that you might not see what to do immediately. Um, the kind of thing that actually you probably want to use um, same surface, different deep, and even different surface, same deep uh, problem variants to communicate if you're going to do them properly. But if you've got people who are racing ahead, you can always rather just well do more, more, more practice, which might be appropriate, but if you feel for any reason it isn't, there, there is this kind of, you could step into a second dimension almost, and there's a whole other bunch of things you can do. Um, I mean, I said the I probably can't help. Actually, that kind of variation between surface and deep structure is, again, the kind of thing that I think Engelman and Kahnine's theory of instruction would advocate for, but um, it's, it's a slightly different kind of thing we're talking about teaching there, and I think um, the theory starts, maybe it starts to hit its limits around some of that okay all right okay i'm 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 happy on the differentiation answer chris but let me ask you this one now this could be two questions or it could be one question i I don't know Mm. how you want to interpret it but if you remember um the second time you were on um i i put out a tweet saying if anybody's got any questions for chris um tweet Mm. them in and professor becky allen friend of the show she messaged in to say if engelman's so good why isn't everybody doing it right yes so i want to return to that question um because if this is the best thing um ever and it's particularly if it's more powerful than cognitive science why isn't everybody doing it so that's yeah. that's question question one and question two which is related to this is if you take something like rosenshine's principles of instruction and you think mm-hmm. so you've got tom sherrington so he writes a book on Rosenstein's Principles of Instructions, sells about 15 million copies or whatever it's up to now, uh-huh. 30 million, 30 million or whatever. Where, where's the Chris Bolton Eng- Engelman series of books uh-huh. here? Where, where, where's this like, I'm going into my classroom tomorrow. I've got to teach adding fractions. Let me get this little booklet out that tells me a suggested first uh, question. It has these kind of scripts in there, the variation in there, all that kind of stuff. So why isn't everybody doing it? And if everybody isn't doing it, mm. why isn't somebody capitalized on this? Uh, why isn't everybody doing it? Part of my answer remains unchanged, which is um, the ideological climate at the time that Engelman was operating. Um, again, Robert Dixon's foreword is so... Good. And I think actually this is a separate point in the introduction 
to a later edition. Um, so the, 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 the dominant paradigm at the time is very sort of discovery and inquiry and um, constructivist in nature. And part of what's interesting, I think it's in the introduction, is the, the author of the introduction points out that actually there are very close similarities it's one of something that the practitioners of like uh, constructivism uh, were missing is that actually their theory of instruction similarly recognizes that learners need to construct their own knowledge. Uh, it's completely consistent with that as an idea. But the big difference there is um, the teacher tightly controls the environment so that you are guaranteed to construct knowledge in the way the teacher intends, which is therefore teacher centric. It's not student centric and student centered ideas were all the rage in the 60s and, and onwards. So you have the, the ideological resistance, but then there's also, I, I'd sort of add to this, and Robert Dixon in his foreword talks about this. Um, it's, it's woefully misunderstood, woefully misunderstood and mischaracterized. And as you pointed out, the, the core body, the core text, body of knowledge text on this is um, so impenetrable that it's not easy to dispel the misunderstandings. And uh, so, I, it, yeah, it, it, it is hard to get a foothold and start running with it. But hopefully some of the, the quick wins we suggested earlier will certainly help the math teachers. Um, why hasn't anybody capitalized on it? Probably for, for similar reasons. I know um, Oliver and, and um, uh, James Murphy have been sort of interested in trying to do something about this in the past. I've been interested in it. Uh, you've, you've also got to bear in mind as well, like based where I am now, I'm, I'm basically giving away a lot of upland secrets here. Um, <laughs> get into trouble for this. And I don't want to give away too much. I feel a book would be giving too much of our competitive advantage away. But I, I, I hope, I would hope to be able to do something in the future. I'd, I'd very much love to. But I think it's, you probably know even better than me. It's, it's a big thing writing a book. Um, <laughs> But it would be it'd be good to do. I'd enjoy that. Okay, a, a few more questions, Chris. And again, I'm going to let the listeners behind the behind the kind of curtain of the podcast. I like mm. doing this. So when when we set this up, um, I, there was a, a number of other areas I wanted to talk to you about, and these were ones that we didn't get round to after our last two kind of three hour conversations that we had. And I don't yes. think we're going to get round to them tonight because it's <laughs> it's coming up to like. 20 to 10 quarter to 10 um yeah and, and, and i live in the north chris and this is very late for us northerners i know you <laughs> southerners are just getting getting warmed up at this stage so there's gonna have to there's gonna have to be a part four so i just want to um i just want to focus the, these last couple of questions just just keep them nice and tight on what we've been talking about in terms of cognitive science and, and the theory of instruction okay. so um I just want to cycle back to what you mentioned before about uh, Mark McCourt saying about these this kind of 30-year cycle and so on. Um, I just get the sense that Engelman has never really been in a cycle because, as you say, when, when his work first came mm -hmm. out, it was it was the wrong kind of time. And now it feels like it's the right kind of time with this interest in, in, in cognitive science. But whether it's because it's, as you said, it's impenetrable or because we're moving mm -hmm. on to the, um, the, the next cycle... It just feels like there's, there's, there's never going to be a place, and um, never going to be a place for this. Well, we, and that that must kind of frustrate you, right? N knowing kind of how powerful this is to to not see it, not see it in action, and, and not not see it being used. Would, would that be right? Is it is it frustrating? Um, 
I think part of what is, is frustrating is um, recognizing the the gargantuan size of the system, and when um, uh, there's so much that needs to be communicated and practiced and worked upon, and because it's not already a part of the system, you you don't actually have much capacity to drive forward the system. There's no pre-existing capacity in it. Um, that can be frustrating, but it's also um, profoundly exciting to to think about just how much untapped potential there there is there, and not just untapped potential in the education sector um, and within teachers, but within human society as a whole. Uh, just just picture a, a future society where uh, so okay, so picture a future society where. 80% of students are achieving the equivalent of a grade nine today in GCSE <laughs> and they find it effortless. Like imagine what that society is able to do and think about. Um, certainly in terms of the sciences, perhaps this can be applied, um, to, to the humanities and to the arts. Um, that today's society can't, can't even dream of. I think that's really inspiring and exciting. It's one of the things we often talk about at Upland and like internally as well. The the excitement of like thinking beyond um, delivering online courses for the revision study availables, and instead in thinking in terms of actually you get all the stars to align around this, and we are talking about a very very different future civilization, a very different kind of humanity where. Um, this is profound leap forwards in terms of, um, of intellect and IQ of what that citizen body can rally together to achieve. I think that's an extraordinary, exciting prospect as well. Um, and I guess I recognize that we just have to have a little patience in the interim because, yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount of change to bring about, a huge amount, um, huge numbers of people in the system and a lot that we all still have to learn. Does it annoy you a little bit that um, I don't, I'm not trying to get you an idea, but <laughs> that, that, um, that there no one else? Well, I, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of people like so yeah. um, Ollie um, and James and Diane Murphy, mm-hmm. but they're also talking about lots of other things. So like Ollie does mm-hmm. obviously a lot about dual coding, is his kind of mm-hmm. big thing, and he's he's working with um, with Tom Sherrington on on teacher walkthroughs and so on, and um, James and Diane lots about reading would be their kind of big thing and so on and so forth. Where and and obviously you mentioned Daisy before. What, mm-hmm. Have you got any allies in this field, Chris? Are you the kind of lone kind of Engelman voice who who thinks about this for the majority of the time? If that makes sense, that this is when you think about education and instruction, you think about Engelman. Mm-hmm. Is is there anyone else? Who fits into that, or are, are you the lone wolf in this in this this field? No, no, no. I, I do think there are a lot of other people. Um, Naveen is is an absolutely huge one. She spends probably more time thinking about this, especially <laughs> in its application to mathematics yes. than I do. It's basically her job right now. Uh, so that that one's absolutely huge, and she's enormously generous with what she puts onto her blog as well. Yes, so, absolutely. For, for people who would just like resources that have been designed according to these principles. She shares um, some of those on her blog, which is very, very generous. Um, there's also the DI Hub has been set up uh, out of the Midlands as well. So there's a school, a school that uh, they've actually sent teachers out to um, the National Institute for Direct Instruction in the US, which is set up by Sigrid Engelman. And so they've like studied under the masters and 
have set up this hub in the UK as well. Um, yeah, so promoting these ideas. So uh, there, there are there are there are other people around for sure. Uh, and also Tom Needham. Tom Needham has uh, written and talked about this a lot in respect to teaching English. Um, Joe Kirby sometimes um, thinks about these things as well. I um, I've, I've been wandering homeless for the past few months, um, <laughs> finally moving into a new place at, at this weekend. And I spent some time um, during that staying with Joe as well, which gave us an opportunity to talk about these things. And that massively um, furthered my understanding of how this can be applied to uh, teaching writing, writing accuracy, writing quality, what the limits of it might be. Um, how we can apply it to factual knowledge as well, which is something we don't teach very often as maths teachers. There's not many, many, not that many facts in, in maths. Um, but it's a, but it's an essential part of history teaching. History teaching, a lot of it really is facts. Um, yeah, so there are, there are definitely others. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, two, two kind of questions to, to end on. Um, one is, um, kind of cycling back again to something you, um, you, you said earlier in our conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something I've been wanting to ask you for a while, actually. And it refers to, to one of your old blog posts that you wrote. And um, you mentioned earlier on when you were teaching this, this, uh, group of year 11s for this 25 minute period that you said to them that, um, you'll never ask a question for which the mm-hmm. kids don't already know the answer. And if, if that ever happens, then it's a mistake you've made. It's, it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does that mean, Chris? Because you, and the title of your blog post was never ask pupils a question to which they mm. have not already been told the answer. Now that, that, <laughs> that feels incredibly counterintuitive, right? Because surely that's the point of questioning to figure out whether kids know things or, or, or don't know things. So what do you mean by that? Uh, no, not necessarily the point of questions. For example, if I want you to learn that the, um, capital of the, Federated States of Micronesia is, of course... <laughs> I'll let you say it, but yeah. No, don't know. get that one. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Palakir. Then it's kind of silly if I ask you that question before I've even told you that it's Palakir, right? And if I ask you that question in the future, then um, what I'm testing now is, you know, are you able to retrieve from memory this thing that you learned in the past? Yes. Uh, which is because there's not much cognitive work goes into understanding that paired relationship there, assuming you know what a country is and capital city and so forth. Um, so I'm just testing that you can retrieve memory. If I ask you the question, actually, having told you that, uh, Palakia is the capital city of which country? And you say, of course. Now, I, I got the Micronesia <laughs> bit, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, it's, um, so you've got two things going on there. Like one is the memory. Is it, and is it that, you know, Craig can't remember that I recently said Federated States of Micronesia? That was or it. That was it. Is it, which probably is in this instance because I glossed over it, but it also I've changed the prompt and the response. So actually yes. I am testing something a little different here. And when I remember, and I wrote about this as well, memorizing the 195 capital cities in the world. I found if somebody gave me the country, I could give all the capital cities. But if they gave me the capital city, hit or miss whether or not I'd retrieve the ah, country. Ah, that's interesting. So there is a small difference there. Um, but we can take this a bit further, I think, because you're not necessarily really asking about that. Um, so I wrote that post and a few others on questions in response to, again, my teacher training, which seemed to believe that... Um, so... It's 2011, so we're operating in a world where the rhetoric we're getting is 
if the teacher is teaching, then kids aren't learning. Or the thing is, if the teacher is talking, then the kids aren't learning. So <clears throat> a lot of the rhetoric was around just asking them questions. But I, 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 you know, I try doing these things, and frequently I've just got a whole bunch of kids who have no idea what to, how to respond. Like, again, in this lesson I just did, where I changed the conditions, the stimulus, just a little bit too much. They didn't think about the response that I'd already given them. They started trying to answer the question, why can't this be solved? And it came up with, like, really quite half-baked thoughts. Now, it's good that they tried and they understood that they, they were confused, but their ability to articulate their confusion was, um, it, it was very unclear. So that wasn't successful thinking that was taking place there. And um, that's probably, actually, maybe that's a better way of thinking about it. You're asking questions that you want to lead to successful thinking, and that can either be... Um, Something as straightforward as um, retrieval of a memory, slight change of a prompt to retrieve it. You know, Palaki was the capital of which study. Or, or we can start taking it further. Um, <clears throat> and I think a big thing I would change is um, I, I gave the example of, say, expanding the, the single bracket with three terms in the bracket, now four terms. Now maybe I'm going to put a, a negative term in here somewhere or swap some things around or, or do other things with them. Um, those might be things that I've never actually shown you how to do before, but I'm nevertheless asking you to do them. And in a way, that's me asking you a question. I've not shown you the answer to. Um, and, but, but, but I've created the conditions mm. so that it's extremely likely, almost certain, even in that instance, that you are going to respond correctly. Um, uh, and actually by stepping back in that moment and yes, asking the questions rather than showing you how to do it. Um, I'm giving you the opportunity as well to sort of, I, I did a talk in this once before. I, I almost referred to it as like micro problems. You're given these sort of micro opportunities to do problem solving. And that, that feels very rewarding. Oh, look, I got the answer right. And I wasn't sure. I didn't know for certain that this was going to be right. Mm. This teacher never showed me, but I got it right. Uh, it's the kind of thing that Michelle Thomas who also developed a, an approach that's basically identical to Engelman and Carnine's theory. It's just less comprehensive and applies only to languages. But um, you, you study French or Spanish or Italian, for example, with the CDs, and you get 90 minutes in. And the assumption is that you know nothing of the language before, 90 minutes in. And he'll ask you something like, uh, what's your opinion of the political and economic situation in France at the moment? How would you say that in French? <laughs> And you're kind of overwhelmed that you can do it. Uh, but it's just very clever sequencing of the content up until that moment. So, um, so, th so there's certainly that, um, where I think that, that, that is very important. And, and also a part of the, the, the theory as well, um, is a set of exercises called, um, expansion sequences. And expansion sequences are actually all about taking the concept that you've been tested on. And the teacher knows that you understand. And it's all about now. It, it, it basically, the, it's like if we go back to Willingham's idea of inflexible to inflexible knowledge, the expansion sequence is designed to take you from a point of inflexible knowledge up to a point of ever increasing flexible knowledge. So it keeps changing the environment in increasingly novel ways, but getting you to apply the same concept to it and trying to make the gap between the last question and the current question so small that you can 
respond. Okay. Okay, I see. And am I right in saying, Chris, just just on, on this thing, that the kind of questions that you think are not the right ones to ask are, for want of a better phrase, the, essentially the, the guess what's in my head style questions, where I want you to speculate on how to do something that I've not taught you before. Uh, but the reason I'm asking you is because it kind of feels better for me if it comes from you than it would if I just told exactly. you straight out. Yeah. Right. I, so. I, I, I even asked a question on the day um, because I wanted to clarify why we call these simultaneous equations and I, and I did ask him does anybody know what the word simultaneous means and frustratingly one person gave a perfect answer uh, oh it means at the same time I was like yes it does but I was thinking it means together which it also means because yes. actually it's a, a simpler way of saying we're solving these equations together yes. rather than we're solving them simultaneously um, and, and I had to say to him, I, I, I apologize for making, asking you to guess what's in my head. That was unfair. And, um, that, that, and, you know, I, I've, I've been in a history lesson before where somebody had on the board, um, it, questions like, what is a revolution? Do you know any revolutions? It, like, what is a revolution? This is the first lesson you're doing with a year nine class on revolution as a concept. And your starting question is, what is a revolution? Yes, yes. Um, I saw a business studies teacher to do the same thing for globalization. So it's the first lesson you're doing on globalization and your opening gambit is over. All right, kids, what is globalization? And it, it, it seems to stem from this world of assuming that, you know, that it's wrong, that it's oppressive to assume that your class don't know anything already. Um, and so you need to honor that by asking the question, what do you already know? And that that is somehow going to inform where you're going to take them as well but in reality you could probably largely predict what people will know about globalization the answer is like probably nothing much compared to the like the explanation you're about to go through with them as a technical thing um if you've been teaching for a while then you absolutely will know what the common conceptions of globalization or revolution are and it's much faster and a bit i, I think actually more respectful just to point out that these are the common interpretations people have um these things might be misinterpretations. These are kind of half right, but look, we're going to like dive into this and um, you know learn something really cool and really interesting about it that you've it never is, thought. Yeah, it's it's interesting just on that. It goes back to what you said about well, what we were talking about differentiation before. It's this, <coughs> it's this, this this need to differentiate that I've certainly felt a lot um, as a teacher over over the over the years, and it manifests itself in this. If you need to differentiate, if you feel the need to differentiate, you also feel the need to to find out all the different levels of kind of prerequisite knowledge and experience kids have. But the amount of time it's going to take to find that out yeah. to any kind of degree of accuracy, if you've got 25, 30 kids, because you can't just ask one question. And if they get it wrong, they're yeah. down one path and down and right, they're down another path. It just becomes so impractical. It's it's not worth yeah. doing. Whereas, as you say, assume assume they know less and kind of teach mm -hmm. them well to build them up so you can do more interesting things. That seems to me to be the more logical way of going about it, if that makes sense. I think that that um, I think you've hit upon it with the with the word um, impractical. Um, we very often overlook, I feel, when we're in schools, the fact that these are um, logistical operations involving thousands of children, even more parents, usually hundreds of teachers, at least a hundred teachers, 
Um, <clears throat> and we're, we're, we're tightly constrained in terms of time. We're tightly constrained in terms of resource. We're tightly constrained in terms of physical environment, physical layout. Uh, we're very constrained in terms of how we're trying to uh, need to move a thousand people around the entire school campus every hour. Um, so there are these enormous constraints and sometimes it feels like we try to treat the school system and the classroom as if it's a world without constraint and anyone can do absolutely anything so long as it's a good idea. Uh, it reminds me of things like triple marking. Yeah, triple marking with comments and comments and comments might be a great idea, but it's consuming far more time than teachers have available to them. Um, so again, like with the differentiation thing and doing something, I, I'd almost rather, um, just because it, it makes teachers' lives more straightforward. And that's not just, that's, I don't, I don't think this is, um, allowing teachers to abdicate from their responsibility. I think it's just recognizing that when you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing very well. And if we focus on just a few small things, we can probably do those few small things very well and achieve a better net gain. So I would rather, um, have a conversation with the class about how some of the things we're going to cover now, some of you may already know. You may have seen this before. You may know something about it. Um, there may be a time when we come to um, going through whatever exercises exist that for whatever reason, there is no extension activity. For whatever reason, you are just going to complete this and there'll be two minutes of dead time. Um, I'd much rather have a conversation with the class about how it's okay to like not be entertained and engaged for a couple of minutes and just take a moment to pause or to um, respect the fact that there are other people in the room who don't necessarily know all of this yet. So we're going to catch everybody up to the same point and that's going to maybe cost you eight minutes of your own time where you know all this. But hey, maybe also it's maybe you've never seen it talked about in this form before. Maybe you've never uh, maybe you've forgotten bits of it. So it'll still be a value to you. Um, and if it's not, then please accept that, please accept that it's going to be valuable for other people in the classroom. And again, there's like, there's something respectful about that. There's something that, um, acknowledges that again, in the classroom, it's a microcosm of a sort of a democratic society where we're, we're trying to be cooperative and work together and support each other. Um, and I, I, in my second school placement, when I was in my first year of teaching, I went to a school that was rated outstanding state school, but it had quite a, so middle class intake, high achieving. And um, I saw a lesson where uh, kids were sort of doing this worksheet. And within a few minutes, this one boy had finished. No, actually, he, what do you do? He, I, yeah, I, I just saw him and he was just doing nothing. That, that was it. This was my, and so when I went over to speak to him, I asked him, like, why aren't you doing anything? And he'd been doing nothing for a while now. He just sat there. And he said, um, oh, well, sorry, I, I finished a, a while ago, sir. I said, oh, well, why aren't you talking to the lad next to you then or like d disturbing him or something? And he just looked at me and said, well, he hasn't finished yet. And it was just this sort of innate sense of respect that he had. It's like, I'm done. I'm just going to sit here quietly for a couple of minutes and respect the fact that the boy right next to me hasn't finished. Um, that always stuck with me. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, final question for you, mate. And I don't know whether this is a quick response or a long response. Mm. I've no idea which way this is going to go. But um, 
just to tie everything together here, um, you, you're, you're you're obviously on Twitter like I am, and you'll mm. have you'll have observed some of the conversations that happen on there. Actually, between people who've uh, who've been on the show, in fact, where one one person will say. Well, have you read the research into this? It says this. And then somebody else will come back and say, well, you want to read this paper because this says this. And then another, well, you want to read this because this says this. Um, is there a danger, Chris, that, that, that now we're a much more, I think we're a much more kind of um, research informed profession. I certainly get that sense mm. over the last few years that you can <coughs> and you can essentially find research that, that, that backs up any point that you want to make. And there's a danger that mm. as soon as something's quoted, it becomes gospel mm. and you can find anything that kind of confirms your beliefs and so on and so forth. Is that do you, do you think that's true? And is do you see that as well happening? And is, and is that a danger of this um, this this mm. uh, kind of negative consequence of this new interest in research that, that seems to be emerging? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to give you a, a mid-length response. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take that. Tie this to the very first question you asked me about. Oh, amazing. This, this is why you've been on the show three times, Chris. This is kind of <laughs> professional guest I like. Go for it. So, uh, first of all, worth acknowledging that uh, a big part of the reason research had started uh, was because this sort of thing was happening anyway that typically um, academics in an ivory tower who'd either never been in a classroom in their lives or not for a very long time were telling teachers what to do based on what they said was their research. Um, Tom Bennett wrote a book, which is one I still haven't read, but the idea was to sort of try to combat this a little bit um, or teacher proof. And Dan Willingham also wrote a book on the topic called um, When Can You Trust the Experts? Uh, because there is something um to unpick up as a part of that so i don't think we've suddenly come into a world where this is is a new thing i think this existed before if anything people are just being more responsive with aha but actually i've read something else um at least those in the twitter sphere the next i'd say is um a plug for uh, anybody going to the wellington festival of education uh this year um one of one of our team members at Upland, um, Sophie Bennett, who's a PhD neuroscientist um, from Oxford, she is doing a talk which is on this very topic. It's uh, when can you, how do you know, like when to trust research about cognitive science and what it says. Um, and so I think she's aimed to like, try and come up with like real quick wins for people who aren't PhDs to be able to follow and apply. Uh, so anybody going to that, uh, definitely worth going to see Sophie's talk, and I'm very much looking forward to that one. Um, so and then to tie this back to the, the early point, um, quite often what I think when that happens, it, it seems to happen most frequently with field research. So this is the kind of research that takes place in a classroom, for example, or across schools. Um, and the challenge there is uh, so that, that's like one so the problem with that um with, with our body of work is schools are very noisy environments it's very hard to apply the scientific method to them it led dylan william to do a dylan not dan william dylan william to do a um talk in one of the early research ads that he literally said teaching will never be an evidence-based profession mm. because so, look like the conditions within schools are such that you literally can't run the kind of randomized controlled trials and double blind trials that they're able to do in medicine. Um, so you do have these problems and it, it therefore does make it very difficult sometimes to 
you, know, you can generate one set of results in one place and a completely different set of results elsewhere. Um, and then the second problem you have is low quality studies, which I think is part of what Sophie is going to look at. Um, I've read one that claimed uh, direct instruction, by which they just meant teaching kids stuff, really. But they said direct instruction um, closes down children's ability to think creatively. And this was a paper that I think had tested 18 pupils. So had nine, I think there were three or four year olds even, actually not even school pupils, nine in a control group, uh, nine in, a, in, a, in an intervention group. Um, <clears throat> and actually when you dive into it, the claims that were made in the abstract, which were being tweeted out, uh, were enormous, enormous leaps from what their research actually said. The abstract could easily have said um, direct instruction makes it easier for kids to learn what you want them to based on their actual analysis, um, based on their own analysis. So, so then you get the problem of low quality research and that's always a difficult one. And sometimes you just have to, you do have to like, find experts whom you can trust and who you know are going to do high quality research and good meta analyses and they'll sift out the, the bad stuff for you. Uh, but then to tie this all the way back to that first question, and this is why I think it would be um, a tragic loss if we backtracked on all of the progress that we've made um, with our exploration of cognitive science, is that most of the principles that have been derived from cognitive science have been derived from laboratory trials, not field studies. So that always, so, so with a laboratory trial, it's it's very controlled conditions. Um, you don't have all the noise coming through that you have for schools. So the downside of that is because it's not um, the, the, the environment in which the trial has taken place doesn't look like the environment in which you would apply the idea. Um, there are some things that might not transfer directly the way you'd expect. Uh, quite often, some of the memorization trials, for example, uh, ask people to memorize pairs of words or nonsense words, things like that which isn't something that we actually very often do in the school classroom. We tend to want to convey um, schemas of knowledge, like interrelated, uh, meaningful ideas. So th there is a difference there. But nevertheless, you are getting something um, uh, fundamental about how the human mind works and how human cognition operates from these laboratory trials. And we can learn a tremendous amount from that and apply it in the classrooms as you've impassionately uh, passionately argued for uh, yourself. Um, and so I, I really do think that we need to see cognitive science as like a real sort of bedrock of what we're doing now. Um, we do need, I think, all the teach, all, all teachers to, to be familiar with it and to be able to apply, um, its findings as, as best they can. Um, and I think this isn't, this isn't a fad. This isn't something that in five years should go away because it was just the next brain gym. I think it's something that should be here to stay forever. We recognize its limits and then we build on top of it with the next set of ideas, which in this case I've argued, I think for, for all of us should be um, getting to grips with Engelman and Carl theory of instruction. Perfect, Chris. 
Absolutely perfect. That well, as I say, there's still many questions I need to ask you, but that is locked <laughs> in for a part four. Um, this, <laughs> exactly, exactly right. But I, Chris, whether I see you in person or I talk to you on the podcast, I always learn something. I'm always challenged, and it's always an absolute pleasure. And this has been no exception. So, Chris Bolton, thanks so much for speaking to us tonight. Thank you very much, Craig. So there you have it. There was part three of my interview series with, with Chris Bolton. He's a brilliant guest to, to have on the show, you know. Obviously, he's super smart. Obviously, he's a deep thinker. But he, he's also a really good listener. Um, and that's that's a problem sometimes because he listens really hard to what I say and picks apart problems with it and stuff. But I, I, I love having Chris on the show. And again, I'm looking forward to part four already. Now... Plenty to reflect upon here in the takeaway. I'm going to take the lesson that I spoke about at the end of the Tom Frankham and uh, Emma McRae interview, uh, interviews. And that is I'm trying to condense my takeaways into a couple of things that I actually will go ahead and, and change about my practice and thinking as opposed to kind of a scattergun approach where I list about seven or eight and it becomes a little bit too much. So um, I just want to focus on three things. Now, the first is this this notion that, that cognitive science is potentially useless and, and has limits. As I said, when I first saw that headline um, in the title of Chris's talk, I was panicky because... Again, well, two reasons, really. One is the classic sunk cost fallacy that, that I've, I've actually dedicated lots of time, energy and effort to trying to get to grips with, with cognitive science and in particular its applications to teaching. So got to, to, to think maybe I've wasted my time. That, that's always hard, just a, a human tendency. But then the other thing is, like, I genuinely believe it's improved me as a teacher. My my, my knowledge of, uh, well, limited knowledge of, of cognitive load theory and Bjork's work and Willingham's work and so on, I believe have made me a better teacher. Um, and just to break that down a little bit, um, things like cognitive load theory and desirable difficulties, they certainly tell me what not to do. They, 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 when I started reading it and looked back on my practice and I used to think about the way my slides used to be designed and the way I would be talking whilst the kids were trying to read. Um, and then with, with, with the Bjork's work, the way I'd be just teaching a topic, assessing that topic. The kids were doing brilliant at it, color it green on my spreadsheet, then move on to another topic, teach that topic, assess that topic. Just doing things in nice, tidy tidy blocks and giving this the kids this illusion that they, they've understood and mastered things um, instead of spacing it out over time and interleaving and... and constantly doing retrieval activities and so on so they've certainly told me what not to do and, and really highlighted the mistakes I've made um, and almost kind of by definition if you know what not to do it, it gives you pretty good guidance about what to do so again my, my powerpoints look completely different I use a lot more silent work in lessons um, I schedule in retrieval opportunities whether it's low stakes quizzes whether it's starters mixed topic homeworks and so on and so forth I try, try to weave together different areas of maths a bit more systematically but I take Chris's point or my interpretation of Chris's point that it's it's quite general in the sense that it doesn't tell me how I should approach teaching angles period one Wednesday morning to my year eights. It gives me some general principles about what not to do and what to do, but it doesn't tell me what a good example to start with and what good sequencing is and, and so on and so forth, good instructions. But then I look at the other things, um, in particular atomization and the notion of example problem pairs and in particular variation theory. Um, they do, I believe, give me guidance on, on what to do. 
So with atomization, this notion of, of, of thinking about all the things that students need to know to have the best chance of understanding this new idea or this new method that, that I want to teach them and sorting them out first, assessing kids' understanding of them, potentially with a diagnostic question, for isolating that, that those, those small steps, those concepts and dealing with those first so that when students come to see the worked example, their attention can be on how it fits together as opposed to thinking hard about each of the individual components. That does give me guidance about what to do for, 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 most, for most topics, for most ideas. Then when I come to the worked example itself and I, I do my five-stage process that starts with silent teacher and then narration and read the maths and so on that I talk about in my workshops and big plug alert, I talk a lot about in my, uh, my upcoming book, uh, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain. Again, all designed to focus students' attention and make their effort worthwhile that they put into following what I'm doing. Um, I believe that does guide me what to do. Um, and then the practice that follows that initial modeling, I want it to be meaningful. Um, I want my students not to cruise through on autopilot or be like procedure following robots. I want them to think hard about relationships, connections. I want them to have an opportunity to discuss, to challenge, to conjecture. Um, in short, I want them to think mathematically. And for me, the principles of variation theory really help with that. And then when we get onto problem solving and I use my SSDD, my same surface, different di uh, deep problems to get students thinking hard about differences, not just similarities and getting them good at those tricky worded exam questions where the kids are like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what this is about. Again, I, I, I feel that my reading of um, in particular Bjork's work on that um, really gives me practical things to do. And, and also, um, I won't always do this. I won't always use an example problem pair, particularly when it comes to, to definitions of things and, and mathematical terminology. I'll use a lot of examples and non-examples. And if you've used my variation theory website, you'll know my rule activities, the ones with the green background. They're all about showing students something that is and then carefully varying it and showing that students something that isn't to allow them to discern what it is that makes it belong into a category and not belong into another category and so on. So all these tools and approaches I've got up my sleeve and they've all come from my reading of, of cognitive science and related research. So I, I find it very hard to believe that, that it is useless in, in terms of um, defining or, or enabling me to teach more effectively. Which brings us on to Engelman. Now again, as I said to Chris, I've tried to dabble in a bit of Engelman. God almighty is hard. I mean, if you, I tell you what, if you, if you're struggling sleeping, he's, he's worth, he's worth a go. I'd recommend that. And if you, it's, it's kind of almost like a form of meditation because nothing else matters when you're reading it. Because if anything else starts to seep into your thoughts, forget it. I can't even get through a sentence. Like it blocks out all my worries trying to read one of the sentences. So he's good for that. But in terms of kind of trying to digest it and take something away from it. God, I find it impenetrable. So luckily we've got people who are super smart like Chris to, 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 have, uh, to, to do it for us. And even Chris is admitting he's on his fourth reading of it and it's, it's only now kind of really starting to make sense. So my, my understanding is Engelman seems to be the best of everything. The best, taking the best of cognitive science, the best of um, cognitive load theory, the best of variation and so on and so forth. But almost kind of getting there first or getting there independently is it's not been designed... Um, kind of based on this with, with, with cognitive science as a foundation it's been designed separately to this and it, again as Chris mentioned it's it's quite reassuring for, for fans of cognitive science like I am that 
the two the, the two theories or approaches support each other but chris's view on engelman is that that is practical that does tell you effective ways to to, to teach and again this this notion of a, it's almost like a guarantee it's logically faultless you cannot fail to understand this imagine being able to say that to kids you cannot fail to understand this and the way chris describes it it's super practical but again, it needs to be more accessible because this goes back to my question and, and Becky Allen's question from uh, when Chris was on the show last. Like, why isn't everybody doing this? Why are the only people banging on about Engelman that, that I'm, I'm aware of are Chris and Naveen? Why isn't everybody banging on about this? And also, this is the other interesting thing for me. Like, I can do a talk on cognitive load theory or a talk on desirable difficulties or a talk on atomization. And within, like, let's say an hour or an hour and a half, or ideally if I get to spend half a day or a full day with, with, with a team of teachers, they can leave, leave that workshop or leave that session with something they can do the next day. And not just that, but something they can do the next day, regardless of what they're teaching, so it doesn't matter if you're a primary teacher, it doesn't matter if you're teaching year 11, it doesn't matter if you're teaching fractions, if you're teaching um, straight line graphs. There are principles that you can take away that can improve the teaching of that concept immediately, I, I believe. And also things you can embed long term. Now, is, is that true of Engelman? Um, I, I, like, could I go to an Engelman workshop for half a day and come away with something I can use straight away in my lessons tomorrow? Maybe. But are those things that I'm taking away the same things that I could have taken away from a, a cognitive science talk? Do I need to, to get the most out of Engelman? Do I need to fully engulf myself in it and 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 like do it from start to finish? Because it's fascinating. When Naveen Rizvi was, was on the show, and it's one of my favorite interviews, um, she, she described in depth her understanding of, of Engelman's work and how she's tried to make it work practically. And she, she was gracious and kind enough to share the booklets that she uses, which are essentially scripted they have the the choice of examples the sequencing of questions and so on and so forth and again it was a really mixed reaction on twitter once and that, that, that booklet's available in, in the show notes from naveen's episode because it was so different to what lots of teachers were used to and it wasn't i, I certainly didn't get the get the feeling that even if i was teaching the exact same topic that naveen shared the booklet to that or, that that i could just having read the booklet straight away go in the next day and start using it because it was a whole i don't think culture shift is is the right phrase but it was a it would require a massive change so it's i get the sense that and I may be wrong here that engelman uh, is his work isn't littered with quick wins and if it is, those quick wins are the same quick wins that you could get from cognitive science. And, and to get the real power of Engelman, you've got to go in deep on it. But again, I, I, I could be wrong there. But wouldn't it be great, as, as I mentioned to Chris, wouldn't it be great if there was some support on this? So if there was like an Engelman series of, 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 of booklets out there, that so, so here's the here's the simultaneous equations one, here's the um, fraction operations one, here is the straight line graphs one, that has this kind of sequencing, that has the scripts, that has the examples, the non-examples, and, and so on and so forth, that, that shows what it looks like in a classroom, the Engelman way of doing things. And because all I've got to go off is uh, on Naveen's work and, and Chris, Chris's work on this. And it'd be great to see that kind of more more widespread and then just getting teachers, to real teachers, to try it out day to day in their classrooms in the way that they're able to try out, try out things like example problem pairs, low stakes quizzes, SSDD problems and, and find out their take on it. Because I'll tell you what, 
And that's why I, I felt the need to revisit ideas from How I Wish I'd Taught Math in my upcoming book. It's only whenever these ideas get into hundreds, if not thousands of classrooms and are tested by the, the toughest audience ever, which is, which is kids, that you, realize, that, that you find out what stands up and what doesn't and, and what gets misinterpreted and what doesn't. And that's why, again, I've, I've had to change my mind on a number of things to get them to work in the majority of classrooms the majority of times. So for me, the jury's still out there on Engelman, but I'm fascinated by it. And I'm interested to see what happens over the course of the next few years. If, if more people get interested in it, more people start working together and it actually starts to find its way into, into more classrooms. And then finally, my final bit of take, uh, my final thing to take away is this, this choice of examples. Now, I spoke about this, uh, so I wrote about this in How I Wish I Taught Maths, how Avoiding the kind of misleading examples is something I wasn't good enough um, at early on in my career. So things like two squared would always find its way somewhere in there because two is a really good number to start with and also it seems. But what you don't want to happen is that students shouldn't be able to get something right using an incom using inc incomplete or erroneous thinking. And, and uh, if you're not careful with your choice of examples, that can really start to happen. Um, but there's a wider principle now that I'm, I'm thinking about, and I mentioned this um, to, in the conversation with Chris, and I just want to reiterate here, more for my, my own peace of mind than, than anything else, so I'll remember it. And that is that first example that I start with shouldn't be a special case, even if it's the easiest one to start with. Because again, it starts to get students potentially focusing on the wrong thing and, and spotting connections that aren't the connections you want them to spot. So. I mentioned to Chris that, that that notion of starting enlargements with the center of enlargement at the origin, it's the easiest place to start, but it's a special case. And if students start learning, you can double the coordinates. You always get them in the right place for scale factor two. Well, that's not right. That's a special case just for the center of enlargement. And then there was Chris's one with, with the brackets. Now that's a game changer for me that, you know, it's just so natural for me to start expanding double brackets with a coefficient of X of one, of course you do. But that's a special case. And if we can start with the potentially more complex, although it's not a massive jump, then it means that students don't get this kind of blinkered thinking and start making these connections that aren't there. But more than that, when we then introduce these special cases, it's almost more interesting because if you take the brackets one, students realize that when you do x times x, you end up with x squared. Well, there's, there's a reason for that because it's 1x times 1x. And they can compare and contrast that to when they do, you know, 3x times 5x or whatever it is. And the center of enlargement, whenever we do it from the from the um, origin. And like I said, we'll look at that and contrast that to when we enlarge the shape from point 0.1, negative 2 or whatever it is. What do you notice about the vertices? It's, it's more interesting to do these special cases afterwards as opposed to starting with them. And as I say, the trap that I've fallen into is that often these special cases are the easiest ones to start with. So I think I'm doing the right thing for my kids, but I'm not so sure now. So again, it'd be interesting listeners, if you wanna think about topics that you're teaching and particularly that first example, have you chosen it because it's the easiest? Um, and if so, is there a danger that it sets the kids off on the wrong way of thinking? And uh, again, a lot of my thinking recently has been on the sequencing of examples, Perhaps not enough of it has been on that first example that I do as a, an example problem pair with my students. So there you go. <laughs> There's Chris Bolton. 
again, what I really, really, again, I'm a massive, massive fan of Chris. Um, and it's, again, it just, I, I learn loads. I think loads. It gives me an headache sometimes, but I had a headache in a good way. So all that remains for me to do is thank a few people. So thank you to Chris for, for giving up his time again for the... Uh, to be on the show he's rivaling joe morgan for the most uh, hours uh, clocked on this um but yeah what what two great people to have as uh, as friends of the show uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the episode and a huge thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping on tuning into these i hope this one will keep you going on many commutes to work or many walks with the dog or or get you through lots of uh, washing up of plates and cups um, if you want to sponsor the show um, or if you've got anything to promote, uh, just get in touch, mrmartinmaths.com. Um, you can, if you want to support the show via Patreon, there's no um, obligation to, but a huge thank you to, to people who have. There's been some lovely tweets going around of people saying, why aren't you supporting the show and stuff like that? And, and again, it's, it's not kind of puppet accounts from me. I'm not, I'm not paying people to do this or it's not me saying that, but thank you so much to those who have it. It does make a huge difference, more to my wife than, than to me, because it means I can just keep doing these without getting too much grief because um, I can, we can go out for a meal or, or, or something like that, or, or probably more likely pay for a babysitter so we try and get a little bit of a uh, little bit of sleep um and yeah final thing and i apologize for this but just a plug for me book reflect expect check explain i'm nervous about its reception but that'll be out um very soon if you listen to this in february and it could already be out and been panned by the critics if you listen to this in march so who knows what's going to be happening there anyway i shall return with some wonderful guests in the near future thanks so much for listening take care and bye for now